a new quality of life as the lodger on RCA Records. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is uh, your host and co-creator of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity deep dive into David Bowie. This is Mark talking. Um, what we do here, we go into uh, all of David Bowie's albums and uh, other ancillary work, and we talk about it. And uh, I'm always joined by my fellow uh, cosmonauts, I have Eric Monroe. That's right. Fresh, freshly back from the hinterland. Excellent. I'm, um, hopefully you made it back in one piece into the Empire Mines. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, we've got our man of the hour, Mr. Stephen Earl. I am very happy to be here tonight. It's Saturday evening. It's about 937 and there's nowhere I'd rather be lodged than right here. Ah, yes. The jingle of a dog's collar. It sounds great right here, as Butthole Surfers once said. I could hear uh, your co-host Murdoch in the background shaking that collar. Welcome, Murdoch. Murdoch always knows to lean into the microphone so everyone can hear him. Ah, yes. We'll need to teach Eric that trick one day. Um, so... Gentlemen, what we're going to be talking about this evening and what you listeners will be hearing at any point in the day as you're making your daily commute, uh, we're going to be talking about David Bowie's 13th studio album. It was released in May 1979, and that album is, of course, Lodger, considered to be the last of the Berlin Trilogy. And uh, guys, we're going to talk about it. But before we do... How you guys all doing? You ready for this? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. This one got a lot of rotation. Yeah, same here. This is a... If I, I'm not going to give my ranking, but I'm probably going to say that this is my most improved album. And by that, I mean I had, one, I, I had one version of it in my head, and it turned out to be something that was not completely different, but uh, it just turned out to be a lot better than I remembered. Right. Um, I would say the same. It tends to get foreshadowed by its neighbors. If you uh, catch them drift, you've got heroes on one side and then you got scary monsters on the other. Um, those are two pinnacle records of his career. And this one here just kind of is the, uh, the middle child of the family, if you will. Uh, so I'm ready to absolutely dissect it. But before we do, is there any housekeeping that we need to do? Any, uh, anything on the Bowie Bulletin or the Nine Inch Newswire? Uh, Bowie Bulletin, I mean, every week they're dropping a new um, track from that um, uh, Is It Any Wonder EP that's coming out um, on Record Store Day with the rarities and uh, his 97, his Earthlings era band, remaking some old songs and doing some uh, unreleased ones. They just released an unreleased track called Nuts yesterday. Uh, pretty good, actually. So I'm looking, I'm, I'm pretty excited for that one. Um, they, they, they released the... Uh, like uh, God, you, uh, was it Baby Universe or whatever? Is that what it's called? The Tin Machine Baby song? Universal. Yeah, Baby Universal. And it was it sounded great. It sounded like his Earthling band. It was, uh, you know, a little techno-y and 
like pretty chunky guitars and it was way better than uh than uh than tin machine it was crazy so i'm looking forward to listening to that whole thing very good very good and uh nothing news from uh from t resi no i you know until until that uh that rock and roll hall of fame happens i doubt we'll hear much that's true pretty pretty sizable interview with him in uh Revolver, Revolver. recently. Yes. But nothing that we haven't discussed before, you know, Hall of Fame stuff, talk about the upcoming, you know, working on an album this year kind of thing. Nothing we haven't talked about before. Very exciting. Very dangerous. Very excited about that. Um, And uh, anything in the old mailbag, anything from the fan that feeds, anything... uh, we actually we have a homework assignment we still haven't done. Let's make sure we do it before next time, which is uh, coming up with what uh, our our David Bowie farewell tour uh, set list would have been if he toured for Black Star. We we brought that question up like three episodes ago, and much like myself, when we record these episodes and I, I get to the last minute and I'm like, oh, I didn't write my notes down. We haven't uh, circled back to it. So let's remember to do that before next time. Yep. Aha. Uh-huh. We'll put it on the to-do list, the reminders. Yes. Um, Recently, our listeners have gotten to hear us talk about Low for two episodes and then the Duram anthology. Ooh. So uh, here we are to talk about Lodger. And next time, before whatever record we talk about, we'll also discuss what our set list for the Black Star tour would have been. Oh, that's a fun ex- exercise. Um so I'm not going to let any cats out of the bag, uh, but uh, we all three have been discussing about what we were going to potentially do for season three. And my colleague, the mastermind, uh, sprung upon a genius idea that I think all three of us are very excited about. And uh, once season two uh, draws a curtain, um, we'll be announcing what we're going to be doing for season three. And we hope that you will be joining us. And I feel that everyone will be thrilled with kind of the direction that we're going. That's all I'll say. Yeah, that's right. You know, you know yeah. I'll, I'll, in the spirit of Bernie, so, Bern, I almost said Bernie Socialist, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've, I think I've come up with a way where everyone wins, but we will not discuss it with you people until the time has come. Yeah. But for those of you that 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 like us to keep you company. Uh, you know, uh, every week or every couple weeks. Just just rest assured that it will continue on. Yes, indeed. Um, keeping it new, keeping it fresh, like I say to my wife every night. Um, all right, gentlemen, I think it's time you tell me about 1979. That's right. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried. All right, Eric. Shakedown, nineteen seventy-nine. As Billy Corgan once said, "All right, what do you what do you got for me?" Is that what Speed. he says? He says, "Shakedown." 
I think so. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you know, it's a really uh, interesting, interesting story I learned of today is that during the uh, the Smashing Pumpkins tour in 1998 or so, or 99, where they introduced uh, Melissa Off Dumour. Is that how you pronounce her name? It's German sounding, but yes, Der Mare or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, when James Eha introduced her at a Smashing Pumpkins tour, he got the whole crowd going in a chant of Du Hast. <laughs> Good for James Eha. Uh, funniest thing that probably that man has ever done. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> just well, he a wasn't was, was blank he part slate. of was he he wasn't part of Zwan, was he? He was not. He had his own little solo record during that that phase, I believe. You have to ask Daniel Kilman on this. <laughs> so, Eric, t- tell us all about tell us yeah. all about Zwan, yeah. uh, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, yeah, curtains closing. Uh, the seventies were about to fade into the eighties. Um, this is that interesting, you know, two year from like 79 to 81. It's still basically the seventies, but you see some eighties trends and fashions coming through. Um, little inflation, 11.2% inflation in the USA. Um, average income per year, $17,500. Oh yes. History's greatest monsters was the president at this point. <laughs> yeah. That would be Jimmy Carter. That's right. That's <laughs> what, was the, uh, what was the average income there? 17,500, 17,500. What's a teacher's pay <laughs> in today's money? Oh man, speaking of Jimmy Carter, um, listen, love the guy, but he just had bad luck after bad luck when he was president. Uh, he, he, he was stopped. the, he was the Eric Anderson's of president presidents. Uh, they say. You know what? That's why I feel a kinship. It's true. If you, if you can, <laughs> I, I don't know how people walk around and they don't just step on banana peels all day and like lo- <laughs> loose boards and that. <laughs> walking through screen doors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, my life. Ayatollah was exiled from Iran for 15 years. He returned to Tehran um, and he like seized the government and, and it became a, a Islamic Republic um, this, this particular year. So that was a big uh, that was a big to do that would have ramifications for a while. Um, Cold War is was still chilling down instead of heating up, right? Because it's the Cold War. Um, uh, Jimmy Mr. Carter freeze puns. So you gotta <laughs> <Yeah>. love them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, um, Jimmy Carter was chilling out with uh, Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev as they signed the Salt II Treaty. Um, as far as uh, reducing their nuclear arms. Um, but clearly the fear of the bomb was still present as it will show up on this album. Uh, toys. Um, there, uh, there, there's a couple notable toys that came out this year. There was the Farrah Fawcett hair toy where it's, it's basically a, it's a basically dismembered, uh, dis- it's a disembodied head of Farrah Fawcett with um, long, beautiful blonde hair. And all of the accessories you could put in that hair, comb it, blow dry it. Girls were going crazy for this. And also 40-year-old single men. That's true. That's true. The uh, BTK BTK killer was somewhere combing that over and over again. (laughs) 
uh, Star Trek toys uh, were huge this year. And uh, after watching the toys that made us, it's so funny to see the original toys didn't have anything to do with the show whatsoever. They were like rebranded space toys from another line. But this year would actually look like the Enterprise. It actually looked like the uh, the the crew. So Eric, have you watched the uh, wrestling toys edition of that? I have not. I have not. I wrestling. I don't know anything about wrestling. You don't need to know anything about wrestling to enjoy it. I, I think you'll get a laugh out of it. It's absurd. (laughs) Awesome. I will watch it. That's a great show. So, uh, Superman, the movie dropped. I'm a big fan and it's not perfect. The opening credits are like 12 minutes long of just, uh, letters flying through space. But what they were trying to do, they set up Zod in the first five minutes. They have, uh, Marlon Brando is Kal-El's dad. Let's rank your Superman movies here. Oh. All right, rank them all. Four being the absolute worst. Superman. Yeah, you've got Super Superman, Man of Steel. Maybe that would be the next one. Uh, then you got Superman 3. Um, and... And that one's terrible. That script is one of the worst scripts in the world, but at least it has Richard Pryor in it, even if he's Superman totally 3? wasted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that has everything you could ask for. <laughs> Drunk Superman fighting himself in a junkyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. I, oh, I, it's I maintain that I maintain that even in the worst movies, and he was in many bad movies, I will still watch a movie that has Richard Pryor in it. Absolutely. That's an instant watch. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I thought it was weird that you uh, Town's last birthday was the toy theme, but hey, you know, I know you're a fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've, I've told you before that my stepmom was in a crowd shot for Brewster's Millions. So, you know, it's a, it's a, the next logical progression is that family classic, the toy, that has no right. problematic themes at all. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It sounds like it's high up, but I'd, I'd probably put it dead even with Superman three as Dawn of Justice, it's Batman versus Superman. And then you've got your, then you've got, then you've got, I'd probably go Superman Returns two and then one as the best. But that's that's my rankings. I like Superman Returns. It's great. It's okay. What about Justice League? Oh, I didn't think we're counting that. That's not a Superman movie, but we are now. Uh, God, it's it's almost indistinguishable from the Donna Justice, so I guess they'd be they'd be tied for tied for fourth place as well. Uh, those are fine. Those are like they're not unwatchable, but they are slogs that you have to watch in chunks. Um, and they they're so damn serious. They're they're uh, they, they they Scott Snyder's Martha. really like trying to trying to make it. That was opera. my mom's name too. <laughs> yeah what uh anyway. you know, it's, un- it's, un- it's unfortunate that uh this is the only time anyone's ever gonna say it's unfortunate that the scary movie guys quit doing those terrible movies because one of the few things that would be funny to parody is just having superheroes fighting that they just say wait what's your mom's name you know you could you make a pretty <laughs> funny scene out of that but, sure uh, and, yep. uh, you know there yep. are there are no more epic movies and there are no more scary movies they're they stopped making them they yep. did it's true it's true a nationwide shortage 
but yeah, I think uh, just to do a lightning round here, uh, my lightning round would be uh, two, one, three, four, Superman Returns, and then the Zack Snyder verse. Okay. All linked right. together. I mean, Man of Steel wasn't too bad. I would probably say, I mean, Superman 4 was, the quest for peace was ridiculous, but uh, I would well, probably J say John Superman 2 was probably my favorite. <laughs> Superman 4, John Cryer is, is, uh, <laughs> is that, is he like Lex Luthor's nephew or something? And he's got the flying Doesn't car. Doesn't the heart attack come back for that one? <laughs> he does. And he's got a flying car. Yeah. And he's like, oh! Yeah. Doesn't John Cryer become like one of the Lex Luthers on the new TV shows? Uh, oh, I man. don't know. Maybe you could be. You could like be the right. one with Lo Lois and Clark, or no? I think Small he's on the, that on that Crisis and Multiple Earths thing oh, they did on the awesome. shows. Yeah, I'm not caught up on the on the on the WB shows yet. The CW shows. Yeah, I'm not caught up yet. But uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. John Cryer's in there. That's perfect. Yeah. Steven lightning round. What's your, uh, what's your rank in there? I don't have one. I, I have not watched them enough. I to, to, to have an opinion. Fair I enough. Think, I, I mean, think it's interesting. You put two before one mark. I, uh, I like to, I like to a lot as well. Um, I just, that's just, that's just very telling. That's all. That's all. General Zod. That's right. It's great. It's great. Breaking out of the negative zone or yeah. Yeah, the Phantom, the Phantom, Phantom Zone. zone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that one's good. Negative uh, Zone, Negative Zone is Marvel. Phantom Zone is DC. For the last time. <laughs> oh. I just, I just, I, uh, Superman Two just doesn't have enough Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty scenes for 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 my taste. Uh, Mr. Luthor, Ned Beatty's absolutely outrageous in that first movie. He's just <laughs> scene stealer in that in that film. Uh, all right, yep, he tends to do that. So other, all right, other continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the most ridiculous Bond movies came out this year: Moonraker, um, uh, Rocky Two. Great where movie. You where he finally gets to win, right? Rocky, uh, when he finally the second movie where he finally gets to win, um, <laughs> I uh, this, this is better. This is my, I can rank the Rocky movies. I can do that. Let's do it. All right, Rocky one, obviously, it's number one. We're going best to worst. Uh, Rocky one, and then uh, I'm gonna have to say Creed, and then Rocky two, and then Rocky Balboa. And then Rocky Four, and then Creed Two, and then Rocky Three, and then Rocky Five. Mm, Rocky Tommy five. Gunn. Rocky Five should be dead dead last with a bullet. Yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. Um, I haven't seen the Creed movies, and I haven't watched Rocky Six, otherwise known as Rocky Balboa. So I can't I can't play this game. But uh, the, the right answer is Rocky Four is number one with a bullet. If you're an American, <laughs> it's Rocky Four. <laughs> it Rocky Four, it might be the most entertaining. I'll give it that oh, much. Oh, Throw in the damn towel. One of my favorite things about Rocky Four is that ridiculous James Brown song. And oh, yeah. My, my, my little brother has a, uh, he's a very interesting musical palette. And when he really likes something, he really likes it. 
and more often than not, I've like walked in on him in a room, just sitting there listening to uh, "Living in America." Like, <laughs> With American he takes flag trunks on. Hey, he takes that song seriously. Oh. Mark, oh, you should man. watch those. You should watch the Creed movies. Come on. I know, I know. I'm I'm sleeping on them. Uh, both of them are directed by Ryan Coogler, or just the first one. Just the first one. He produced the second one, but the second oh, one's okay. it, it's fine. The first one's really good though. So this is crazy. Looking at this list, they're all franchise movies. We could do this game for every single movie on here, almost, with the exception. Well, we're not gonna. Of, no, we're not. But well, with depends, the exception, it with depends the, on what the next movie. What's the next yeah, movie? You'll you'll see. But uh, oh yeah, Alien. Alien came out this year. God damn, Aliens. that movie is so good. Oh. Alien One is great, but Aliens is just I, a, a fuck. Just it's a roller so, coaster ride. So it's much so fucking great. fun. I actually agree with you yeah. on that. I'll put Aliens above it. I actually like. I like all four. I like Resurrection a lot as well. It's that that French director that did City of Lost Children and a Joss Whedon script, and it's a that that's a goofball French sci-fi. That's a goofball movie. Yeah, me and but Steve, I, enjoy I think it. saw that in theaters. I did that as well. <laughs> I did as well. Yeah, that is a goofball but movie. You saw it. You didn't see it with us, Eric. No, I did not. No, I saw it. I saw the Birdcage with my brother. Birdcage. Uh, Birdcage. Now a Best Buy. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, aliens. When she comes out in that mech suit and says, uh, "Leave her alone, you you bitch." I'm sure yeah. that just the. Uh, the movie theaters erupted during those uh, scenes. Well, just a, every line that rest in peace Bill Paxton says in that movie is just a knee slapper. He is just he is just firing at on at, at level eleven. That whole that whole movie. He's yeah, great. God, that's a and good of one. Of course, uh, you know, American heartthrob Paul Reiser is in it as <laughs> the villain. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> poor man's <Yeah>. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, man, speaking speaking of villains. And uh, listenership is just just bailing right now, but uh, <laughs> oh man, the wife put on Purple Rain for a while today, which is a fun movie. And Morris Day is straight up the villain of that movie, and it's oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's Morris just Day wonderful. And the time I've never seen that movie. Can you believe it? You should watch it. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, Morris Day is like a cross between Morris Day and a Batman villain. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, Graffiti Bridge, the sequel, is. Not good, but it's so much of a train wreck. I can't also. I can also not advise against it. Um. So yeah, this also had the Muppet movie. Uh, great, great movie. We've I, already we've already talked about the Muppet movies. We don't need to. We're not relitigating them. All right, and then the Amityville Horror series broke out this year, and Star Trek: The Motion Picture broke this year. Viger. We're not gonna rank Star Trek movies, but give me your Amityville movies. Rank them. Let's go. I, I haven't seen fucking <laughs> any. I've seen the first one. That's it. I've seen that this very first one. It's the only one worth a day. Oh, and then a couple one and dones. You got the Deer Hunter. And, that was bonkers. Oh yeah, it's great. And uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Now rank your favorite divorce movies. Go. All right. We could do it. We could do this all night. All right. That's 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 movies, guys. Let's move on. My favorite. I can do that though. I can give you my number one. No, there, no, there's, there's two. They're easy. No, wait, wait, wait. Is, Royal, is Royal Tenenbaum? That's not a divorce movie. It's post-divorce. So, yeah. The Squid and the Whale. Ah, oh, good choice. That's good. That's a good choice. Fantastic. I know. Have you uh, checked out the Marriage Story? Another Noah Baumbach movie. I still have not watched it. It's, uh, that one. Uh, yeah. High praise from this guy. I loved it. 
Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. 70s shows lasted for 15 fucking years. Like they went on forever. So some ones we haven't brought up yet that are worth talking about. Uh, the Muppet Show, which was great. We've already done our Muppet spiel. Um, you also have Charlie's Angels, Different Strokes, uh, Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy is not a good TV show, but it's amusing. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Happy Days spinoff of all things, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, friend of the show, John Ritter, uh, crashed through the door and fell on the carpet in Three's Company every episode. We love this. I, we love this I, I love Three's Company. It's, I uh, love Three's Company. Yeah. I probably, and you know, Mark and I's love for Three's Company is why we fell in love with Eric Anderson. <laughs> I mean, oh, if anyone, if anyone is, is keeping the legacy of just tripping over shit all the time alive. <laughs> That's Eric. right. Dick Van Dyke uh, gave way to John Ritter, who gave way to me. And uh, I'm glad only... T I wish more people could appreciate my uh, pratfalls, but... <laughs> Don Knotts was electric on that show. Like, his <laughs> little freeze frame, like, big old buggy eyes. Electric performance from Don Knotts. He would wear, uh, he would wear <laughs> huge collared shirts and kerchiefs. Oh, yeah. It was a good, it was a good look for him. Oh. Uh, and then the show that's actually... I don't know. I think it's actually pretty pure quality is Taxi. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Taxi's yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Friend of, the, friend, of the friend of the show, Danny DeVito. Uh -huh. Friend of the show, Tony Danza. You know. Oh, yeah. It's all true. Of friend course, of the show. Kaufman. Friend, friend of the show, Christopher Lloyd. That's a true friend of the show. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anyways, uh, Music, um, you know, uh, this is really the disco era, like BG's Love You Inside Out, Dirty, Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. Um, Blondie was starting to break through. I always enjoyed Blondie's take on, on that whole scene. Donna Summer with Hot Stuff. And, uh, you know, Pink Floyd, the Eagles, these guys have been around hitting these top 10 lists for the whole decade, and they're still going strong. Oh, wait, so 79, that's when The Wall came out. That is exactly right. I was just going to say that. Not going to just gloss over The Wall, Eric. Sorry. I, I was waiting for you guys to tell me which one came out in 79. Yeah, go. It was The Wall. It was great. It's the it wall. was great. It's a classic record. How can one band release two classic records in uh, the span of six years? It's... Unless your name is David Bowie, apparently, but uh, Pink Floyd. David Bowie man. can release release like six in six years. We've learned. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Mark, top three songs off of the wall. Ooh, uh, comfortably uh, numb is right in there. Nope, 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 nope. You can't use comfortably numb. That's too easy. Can't. I'm sorry. That song. I mean, like, have you heard that second guitar solo? My goodness. I have. So now um, you got to do your, your two through four. Okay. So, uh, hey you, amazing. Um, I would say, <laughs> uh, in the flesh, either version, because it's uh, a question at the beginning and then a statement at the end. Um, and, uh, 
shit, man. Uh, I don't know. Goodbye, Blue Sky. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, All right. That's enough. Um, okay. And run like hell. There's there, there's too many to pick from, but yeah. Hey You. Sometimes I think Hey You might actually almost uh, overtake Comfortably Numb for me. That, that's uh, great. That song really gets me. Um, Thin Ice. I really like Thin Ice. Yeah. It's kind of a... It's a short little song that leads into something more, but I, I like it. Yeah. And uh, Mother. I love Mother. Really? So Mother was the one that I always had a problem, like, sinking my teeth into, but it has its moments where it just soars like the eagles. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the animal, not the band. Um, but, uh, yeah, The Wall, it's not my favorite Pink Floyd album. It's definitely in my top five Pink Floyd albums, but it's not my favorite. Um after going through a run-through, and dear listener, thank you for sticking with our di- diatribes, but I've been recently going through a Pink Floyd run-through, um, and I'm also listening to even their solo records, and let me tell you, uh, when they're broken up individually, it just doesn't work, but when they come together, that's where the, the magic happens. Um but my actually number one favorite Pink Floyd album after doing the run through, I know it's so typical to say it, but it's Dark Side of the Moon. Like, I think that one, I just, I can't believe they released that in 1973, way ahead of its time. That thing just st- stands the test of time. It is so good. Yeah, I was, I was right behind you, inspired me to do it. And then I stalled out at uh, Wish You Were Here. Not for lack of quality, it's a great record, just I have not had enough time. But I did, I did listen to Dark Side of the Moon like, uh, like five times in one weekend. And of course, I've probably heard it 500 times. But yeah, the fact is so ahead of its time. But this time, though, listening to it, trying to be critical. What struck me is the song On the Run. How that sounds like it should have came out like 20 years after it did. That's right. Uh, it's just insane. That's like pure craft work right there. You know? Yeah, it's got all these, these 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 synthesizers doing all these weird sequences and the, yeah. the phasing of the sound from one speaker to the next. Yeah, truly. They actually had someone running, had someone running up and down a hallway, you know, to capture that those footsteps. It was ridiculous, and it goes from one headphone to the other. It just bonkers how good that record is. Um, but this isn't a Pink Floyd series. Eric, continue. Are we uh, on to? I hear some. I hear some drums in the background. I hear that song there kicking they are. in. All right. Yes, 1979. The World Series winner, the Pittsburgh Pirates over the Orioles. Well, those are two miserable teams these days. <laughs> oh man, this is this is a fun. Uh, the Pirates became the only team in sports history to come back from a three-game-to-one deficit in a championship series two times. You know, that's happened. It happens rarely, but they're the only team to do it twice. Uh, so there you go. Most famously, the 2016 Cavaliers did that in the finals against the Warriors. That's right. Rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. But we're talking about basketball. And in basketball, the Seattle Supersonics won four games over the Washington Bullets for the only finals win in, Super, in Seattle Supersonics history. And now that would be impossible because Seattle doesn't even have a team anymore. And the Washington Bullets are now the Washington Wizards, a friendlier name. And uh, what happened to the Supersonics? Where'd they go? 
They moved over to, uh, oh, how does this work? Um, Oklahoma City. Yeah, somehow they became the Oklahoma City. It, it's a, it, 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 the Thunder. Yep. And it's tied, into, it's tied into Katrina somehow. And then Seattle tried to steal the Kings. And the Sacramento Kings are so bad now, I wish they did. I wish they just would have took them away from me. <laughs> I don't want to worry about them anymore. <laughs> that bad. And uh, over in uh, football, where the, uh, the 49ers did not win the Super Bowl this week, last week. But back then, the Steelers beat the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl thirteen. How exciting for everyone. But not as exciting is what was going on with David Bowie and his friends making an album called Lodger. That sort of came together because in, in Kenya, especially in Mombasa, in many of the bars there, you find these old, um, a lot of them German, ex-pilots who sort of hang out in the bars and they're still wearing sort of most of their pilot gear. All right, we made it through 1979. Uh, where was this album recorded? Anyone have the answer for me? Sure do. <clears throat> for the most part, it was recorded in Switzerland. Um, That's they not were... in Berlin. I know, right? Isn't that crazy? That doesn't make any sense. Um, yes, it did, you know, it did, uh, David Bowie kind of ret- he, he kind of pulled a uh, a red condit. Yeah, where by the time he was in, he's like, you know what? The last two, yeah, they they were part of this. Uh, I'm working on a trilogy, believe it or not. Yes, it's a trilogy now. And uh, yeah, all, all right, David. It's similar to David, but by the time Marilyn Manson's third album came out, he's like, well, you know, if I, their fourth album, if I tie this to the last two, people, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dig it more, or at least give it more of a shot. So I think there was a little bit of a marketing going on with him talking about this being part of his Berlin trilogy, even though he wasn't in Berlin at all. Can anybody confirm or deny that this, this Switzerland recording is the same Switzerland that he would go back to. And like, that's where he did like, never let me down. And he ended up doing a lot of stuff there in the eighties. Yes. Okay. Same Switzerland on the map. I don't know about the same recording studio. Yeah. Yes. You say it's the same recording studio. Mountain studio. Okay. I'm saying yes. Good enough for me. So they were (laughs) on the, uh, Isolar two tour, which is just this great name. Sounds awesome. And he actually brought Brian, Eno along for the tour and it was his Berlin band. And they were playing songs from the air. I, it's, that would have been an awesome lineup to see. Eno had to drop out after a couple shows, though. He didn't stick with the whole tour. And in between, we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about that tour a little bit more when we talk about Heroes. Okay, cool. Yeah, they did some live al- live albums from that era that we're going to get into. Eno did drop out, but he's he did stay attached to do recording because in between legs of the tour, they would go to Switzerland and record, and then they they finished things up in New York. Uh, when it was all over, um, you know, from whence he came. The recording on this was uh, kind of crazy, if you read about it. It was nuts. Um, you hear about that the relationship between Bowie and Eno was like dissolving a little bit, and it wasn't anything like personally negative. It was just like Eno was a was Eno was bonkers in the studio, so he was like. He was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a song, and I'm going to pass out cards. And whatever card you pick, that's the instrument you're playing on this song. No questions asked. 
And uh, yes, that, there's and, a, it's called the oblique strategies. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I when I when I read about this, I it's interesting that I think I don't know if Brian Eno came up with it. Sounds like something he would have came up with. But it I, is um, he. he- created the cards yeah yeah john john zorn uh used to do this too they and say uh these are some they used to do it live sometimes and some of the stuff mike Patton would do and it was more improvisational jazz so it made a little bit more sense but yeah they would you'd get a random card and you try to like somehow that card would tell you what direction to go in or what direction you could not go in right <clears throat> and uh and it was kind of nuts like they they had the the each each room for every instrument was isolated in a separate room, and then they were monitored by um, closed-circuit security cameras. So, like Bowie and Tony Visconti were sitting up in their little, their little cat, crow's nest with these all these little like security TVs watching the the, the performers uh, create down there. Um, and uh, yeah, just anyways, it sounded, it sounded bonkers. Eno didn't like Bowie's way of doing it. Bowie's way was basically like have the house band listen to my demos, get their song down, and then we'll add to it. That was Bowie's way. And Eno was like, no, no, no. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta make shit crazy at the front line, not later. And um, that's kind of when they kind of both realized this would be their, their last collaboration for a while, not forever, but for a while. And the, 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 the house band was, uh, you know, th- there was a lot of people on this record. Um, but uh, as far as like George Murray and Dennis Davies, uh, bass and drums, respectively. Tony Visconti filling in whatever instrument it needed in the meantime. Uh, we had Sean Mays on piano. That's, yeah. I think he played for Bowie live on uh, uh, that 1978 Iso- Isolar 2. Um, and then uh, we have a very special guest guitarist on a few tracks, Steve. Yes, Adrian Blue is on this record. Yeah, apparently we'll more about him. He had not joined up with um, with King Crimson yet. He was touring with Zappa. And um, that's where Bowie swooped him up. And, uh, and I think Dave Bowie did, you know, he essentially said, like, I'm going to take your guitarist. And then he did. But uh, no, uh, Adrian Blue definitely picks up right where Robert Fripp left off in the last record. And they would join forces on other albums together. And yeah, they're all part of the, the same, uh, they're, they're coming from the same brain space because Fripp and Eno, Blue and Eno, Rip and Bowie, Blue and Bowie, Blue and Fripp, they all, they all work together well. They do. Uh, it's it's crazy that Fripp and Blue weren't in uh, King Crimson together yet, because, like, I mean, I can tell the difference in their guitar styles, um, but they're they're very much of this of a similar mind in how they shred, and uh, uh, it's just very interesting that they weren't collaborators yet. I didn't know that. Okay, so uh, that's kind of a little bit of the backstory around the recording of this album. Um, before we go into track by track, uh, what were the critics thinking about this upon release? Uh, any of you guys have that information? 
<laughs> Always ask a question you already know the answer to. Uh, so, uh, so apparently, Lodger was not considered a smash success by the critics upon release. Uh, people, Rolling Stone called it one of the weakest of the of the Little Berlin trilogy. It was scattered. It's a footnote to Heroes, an act of marking time. Uh, Melody Maker found it slightly faceless. Um, uh, it has since got a lot more uh, notoriety in its quality. Um, soon after its release, uh, it was predicted that Lodger would have grown in potency over a few years. This is according to Roy Carr and Charles Shar Murray. But eventually it would be accepted as one of Bowie's most complex and rewarding projects. And without giving my personal feelings away, I will say that they were exactly correct in that. Um, apparently this album was so uh, influential that techno artist Moby stated the only reason that he got his first job as a golf ca uh, caddy was that so he could afford to buy a lodger. Um, so, so we have we have David Bowie to blame for Bo for Moby. Great, that's kind of true, and we got to see both of those live on Area Two. Um, but Pitchfork, you know, they have in subsequent releases have given an eight point five out of ten. Um, so people have certainly come around, and I would agree with that. It, uh, like I said, it's kind of the middle child to Bowie's career and where he was at and where he was going it's kind of that stopgap, but there is certainly gems to be found on here and um, he has those albums he has those he has those bridge albums we've talked about some of them before um yeah. and uh yeah i think i think station to station even though it's a fully realized record it was definitely leading to the berlin trilogy and uh, on the tail end of the berlin trilogy here i definitely I hear more of scary monsters in this than I do low myself. Oh yeah. Me too. So yes, especially definitely. in the back half of this record. Mm hmm. And yeah, I just want to, I want to, I want to enunciate, uh, put a stamp on the fact that this is another record that is the David Bowie, uh, Alomar Davies Murray, uh, lineup, which I've decided after doing this podcast is one of the best rock bands I've ever had the pleasure of listening to from, Station to Station to The Idiot to Low to Heroes, this record, and Scary Monsters. It's just a, just a series of great records, one after another. You have Visconti on the majority of those as well. So it's just a, they're a really tight unit by this point. His band is smoking on this album. They, they're just, oh, yeah. They're just, they're just clicking. It's, it's, it's great. There's one song in particular that they just like are, you know, that there was magic happening in the studio and we'll get to that track later. And they just are really just working off of each other. It seems, you know, I really, I really enjoy the songs where you can tell that they were, they came from a probably not a rock band training more like rhythm and blues. And um, yeah, there's a few of those on here. Also, did you guys get a chance to either of you look at that video I posted where Dennis Davies son is going through his dad's back catalog and like playing along to it and learning about it? No, I think I missed that in the, in our little feed. Yeah, you should watch it. His son's quite young and, uh, I, Dennis Davies has passed on by now. And, um, 
he's going through and like this particular video was him learning how to uh, how uh, look back and anger was put together. Ooh. Yeah, very good percussion on there, and uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, he was a great drummer, man. I've re- really grown to appreciate him. That's uh, one of the many side nice side effects of the podcast. I just I I had no idea how good these guys were. Yeah, yeah, I second that. Here, here. Um, all right, guys. Uh, let's see how we're at thirty-seven minutes and change, probably seven minutes plus, and. Uh, some time for buffoonery, so I think it's time that we uh, we actually go T by T. Let's go ahead and take a listen to hear what David Bowie's version of Fantastic Voyage sounded like. All aboard, let's take a listen. In the event that this fantastic voyage should turn to a I prefer the Coolio cover. <laughs> I agree. I slide, didn't hear any slides, slide. Liberty slide. <laughs> I know. How disappointing. The whole slide, slide, slippity slide thing would actually fit in with some of the nonsense they get into on this record. It's true. Yeah. Come along. That's originally done by Lakeside. And it was Coolio that picked it up, but uh, you're right. It didn't sound anything like that that, uh, 90s jam. No, but you know what it does sound like? It sounds like a great opener that really sets you up with what you're getting into on this record that from the title lodger to the album cover, which is like a, a man falling out of a suitcase to many of the tracks on here that talk about going from one place to the next. It sets you up for what you're getting into on this record. I think it's a perfect opener for, for setting the table for this album. There are three mandolin players, Simon house, Adrian Ballou and Tony Visconti. And each violin has been then layered three more times over it. Um, so there are moments, and it doesn't even, you don't even know you're hearing a mandolin, but, um, it's like wall of sound mandolin happening, creating a pretty crazy, uh, like strumming as percussion effect. Uh, Eno's credited as doing ambient drone and you can definitely hear it in the song. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is, uh, on the new career in a new town box set, there is a 2017 Tony Visconti remix of this album. And um, I don't know if you guys checked it out. Did you guys listen to that? I did. Yeah. I listened. I listened to. I listened to it quite a bit. Um, I prefer the 2017 mix. I think Tony Visconti put the vocals too far up front on his mix. I would agree with you for the most part. There are a couple tracks on this, including this one, that I think there are some Eno sounds that I never heard before that I can hear in the Visconti remix that I appreciate. I, I like hearing some of the synth work that was happening that kind of goes into background noise, which is kind of the purpose of it, but it's kind of fun to hear it bling and blang and uh, out of the speakers in the, in the Visconti remix. Um, I do agree with you. I think you can hear more things 
Right. But it's at the expense of the rhythm section most of the time. Yeah, and and there's a cool the the, the original version and then and you and the 2017 mix, there is a cool like you know, almost like lo-fi quality to the production of this album that gives it kind of a timeless, cool sound, like in my opinion, um, that is lost in the Visconti region. I think I only listened to the 2017 mix. Uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to the Tony Visconti mix before uh, press time, oh, okay. so I'll make yeah. sure to do that. Um, but to go back to this song, uh, I do think it's an excellent album closer or opener, excuse me, um, I like how it basically sets the scene for the first five tracks really being about traveling somewhere. Um, the most striking thing about this song is how uh, depressive in nature the lyrics are, right. uh, saying that detached leaders are essentially going to be the downfall of humanity, but the music actually sounds somewhat romantic. Um, Agreed. With those mandolins, right? Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy that. Uh, I really love the ramp up that occurs during the it won't be forgotten because we'll never say anything nice again. Uh, Bowie's definitely singing for the rafters in that part. Um, it's a good little song. I, I like the message that it says. And uh, it kind of seems to take you away to some exotic place, um, even though lyrically it seems like we're all. Uh, fucked from people that uh, you know live in isolation from the rest of the population and yeah. uh, would be happy to just push a button and end us all. You're right, and and you're sp- I mean you're spot on in in what the song's about. It is not literally about a voyage. Life is the fantastic voyage, and um, uh, should it turn to erosion and we never get old, like this is the this is the worry of the Cold War. You know. Um, it's a moving world, but that's no reason to shoot these missiles like we're fatherless scum. Um, you know, it's just this fear. I really, that, that, that line you just brought up, the shoot these missiles with fatherless scum, I love the delivery, the cadence on that line. Right. Yeah, and, and being in Berlin for as long as he did, uh, even though he's not in Berlin for this, it definitely informed, you know, his worldview. I, in some of the later reviews that I read, when people are kind of giving him credit it is the it is the most that some of the tracks on here are the most social socially conscious bowie tracks that he's done in his career um they're not super like meta about him which we love those songs but they're not i mean there are there there maybe is like one um but it's 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 it is more being empathetic and 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 fear like political paranoia and fear um the uh it is about basically like, you know, even though this song doesn't go any, it doesn't travel anywhere like around the world. Like there are this, this, the first side of this album will take us on a little world tour. Um, this song doesn't necessarily do that. What, what he's saying is one thing that we have in common is we, we people are all just ants waiting to be crushed by these self-destructive um, detached leaders. And you're, you're spot on about that. And, and, uh, you know, we have lives. We're important too. Your your dignity, your your being the big dick at the table is important, sure, but is as important as all of our lives. And um, that there's a truth that carries on today. It's 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 pretty great. What's the line that you don't want to be suffer because someone's depression or live with? Some, yeah. You don't want to live with someone else's depression. 
right? That's right. Yeah. We're learning to live with somebody's depression. And I don't want to live yeah. with somebody's depression. We'll get by, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And then another line in there that I, um, it's, 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 it's personal to me actually lately is, uh, there's a line in there about the importance of loyalty, but your life is lo- is, is important as well. And, uh, a very important person in my life lately reminded me how much he appreciates my loyalty. And the fact that I'm so loyal has meant I've been working a lot of long hours, if you will. So work-life balance, you know, what's it worth? Yeah, I think it's a great song. I think uh, Sean Mays is the one on the piano there, and it's got some great piano work. Very uh, elegant. And I think it also has some of Bowie's, some of his best uh, singing it's it's right up there with some of the stuff you find on station to station. There's some some soaring lines on on this track. Oh yeah, that oh, really yeah. really lift up the whole song. The uh, they wipe out an entire race, and I've got to write it down like that. That I and it won't be forgotten, and it just goes like huge. I love that I've got to write it down. Like yeah, you know, the mission of an artist is to is is to is to record these these truths. Well, you know? I, I, I hate to talk about work again. I am always constantly writing things down and leaving notes for myself everywhere because I am paranoid I'll forget something. And the way he says, and I've got to write it down, it, it expresses that same, like, Jesus Christ, i got to write this down because who knows what might happen if I don't feeling. So uh, this, song, this song does a lot for me. I like it. I think it's great. Very and cool did you guys that. notice that uh, I wouldn't – I actually heard it today for the first time. I noticed it. I don't know if I would have without reading about it before. And I actually read it in that – um. David, I have that complete David Bowie book that I reference sometimes and uh, that boys keep swinging has the same chord change in, in structure. Have you guys noticed that? Yeah, I read yeah. that too, but uh, no, I didn't notice it. I didn't pay that much of attention, but I just read that after the fact. You're right. Yeah, they actually they thought about they thought about they thought about doing that for the entire album. They they actually kicked around having the same. Uh, chord structure in the same key for almost the entire record. That was that was a that was a Bowie Eno brainstorm for a minute, and uh, good thing they kicked it because that would have been some samey sounding music. This album is just perfect that I was listening to this. Okay, I already texted you guys about this and in my film snobbery, but I've been watching Wim Wenders until the end of the world, which is now on Criterion. All five hours of it, and um, it's a it's a, it is a globe trotting travelogue. Um, in like this, like neon hued nineties idea of what the future is going to be. It's, it's actually an, an incredible movie, but, um, the Sam Neill character, when he thinks the apocalypse has happened and he's still alive, he finds a typewriter and he just can't stop writing. He just has to keep writing. And it just reminds me of that part in this song. When you're, when you're an artist, you just have to, you have to etch the situation in stone, no matter how bad it gets. Um, and I actually reference uh, that movie again, a little bit later on because, um, I was just really taken by, by that movie and the, it lines up with this globe trotting theme of this album perfectly. Five hours. Well, it's time to jump on a plane and head to Africa on the African night flight. You know, when you explain, you've just explained those two tracks to us now after hearing them and a little bit before when you start recording them with the people you're recording with, yes. do you explain it to them or do you just say, right, well, this is how we're going to do it. Can't you know? Well, uh, this one, this one was very interesting. What we did, we took the basic idea of Susie Q, reversed it, and sort of played the idea of Susie Q backwards, and then 
Brian uh, decided to put prepared piano on it, so he put sort of pairs of scissors and all kinds of metal things on the strings of the piano, and that's where, how you get that thing. That's all piano. All of that's piano, but sort of prepared. And then we took out the main band, so you just have the piano left. And so it's another case of starting out with one thing, putting something on top of it, and taking away the number you first thought of. And then when that happens, when that happens, and you've got that, and you think, my God, that reminds me of such and such a thing. And then you sort of work around that kind of area. Only that particular track, you see. I mean, there are other tracks that I'll point out which were done in a completely different system. I think a lot of the stuff that we write, we've got maybe five or six different systems we use for writing material now. And it, we find more systems every time we do a, an album. So, African Night Flight. When I first bought this record, I lived with Mark, and this was the song that painted how I, in my, my mind's memory, my, the, the ear of my memory, this whole album, in my mind, sounded like this song. Uh, when I would think of Lodger, I would typically think every song sounded as manic and as insane as African Night Flight, which is... Uh, you know, the one of these days, one of these days, like, for whatever reason, that kind of insanity. For When I thought of Lodger, that was a track I always thought of, and I, I kind of painted the whole record with that, even though I knew it had songs like DJ on here, which I've always loved, and um, that uh, Move On, another good one, really melodic. But for some reason, the African Night Flight, this track, I thought the whole, when I, when I would think of Lodger, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the album with a whole bunch of songs that are just, you know, it sounds like there are bugs chirping in the background and people bouncing off the walls. Mm. Cricket Menace. Yes. Dave, Brian Eno actually is credited with playing the Cricket Menace. So. <laughs> Which is a, uh, yeah. a broken uh, drum machine that if you held down a, a key, it would just buzz. And so that's that's what that what was. Yeah. So this is a pretty this is a pretty wild track. This seems like something Eric would really like. Oh fuck yeah! I was crazy about this song. Um, it's it's uh, you got me yeah you got me dead to rights on this one. I, I I love how it has this minor key piano pound at the beginning as it sets the atmosphere of the song, and then because um, there's not a lot of time for atmosphere in the song, like Steve said, he gets to like Bowie gets to rapping. One of these days, one of these days, get on the plane, go to Africa. It gets like it it gets pretty uh, intense. Um, there's not a lot of time to build the atmosphere, but they do it at the beginning. Um, the bass and the piano come in and then you hear a lot of the, like the synthy stuff. And then you hear like African percussion sounds, um, happening, uh, in the background. And this made me think of something that would come out years later. Did you guys ever listen to Eno and David Burns, um, uh, my life in the bush or go no, my life in the bush with ghosts? Yes, and I was I wrote that down as myself. Yeah, there's a couple tracks on here that really take me to that album. It's fan that's a really fantastic instrumental album. It's not the collaboration they did even more recently with uh, the uh, Strange Vibrations, but um, it is a uh, it's a fantastic little instrumental like proto industrial <laughs> like influenced by world music album. 
And um, a lot of the background on this reminds me of that, where Eno would kind well, that, of that's, that, that's fair because, um, for one, yeah, I've, that a record I've, I've listened to that record once, and yes, and also there's a lot of talking heads on this album, oh, in yeah. my opinion. Yes, and part of that's because Brian Eno, and part of that's just because they were big at the, they were getting big in the art rock scene, and David Bowie was buddies with them, and Adrian Blue played with them as well. And um, or went on to play with them, and some of David Bowie's delivery in this album was very David Byrne, and this track is definitely David Bernie, and the uh, the vocals. There's one that's what's much more so, but yeah, I, I, I... yes, there is, but not as much the you know get on the plane, fly there, here I am, I'm David Bowie, not those lines, but just the delivery of the one of these days chorus. It sounds very David Byrne to me. Uh, a few months after Lodger came out. Um... The Talking Heads album Fear of Music came out and it was produced by Brian Eno. And that uh, absolutely has some uh, world music type uh, influence on there. Uh, one song in particular that uh, I recall is called I Zimbra. Ah, I just, uh, I just, yeah, I was just about to say yep. that. Yeah. That, yep. song's, that song's amazing. And that reminds me of the part in this song where like twice they go into some African sounding chants. It's all nonsense, gibberish. It, but they are doing it like like you would hear, um, you know, some uh, Native African music sounds like that. But they would get into this chant, and it did remind. It, I totally pulled that up too. It reminded me of Isenbra, uh, yep. which is a great. I'm, I'm great sure. Call. I'm sure we'll talk more about the Talking Heads one day. That's right. Probably will. That's right. Um, but that's not season three, folks. We're not throwing any red herrings. But we may talk about Talking Heads one day. They, Bowie, when he was in Africa before he wrote this song, he what inspired the, the lyrics, um, even though it's not all about this, is he met these German expatriates, um, these World War II fighter pilots that were now living in Africa, and they would just get hammered at a bar and wait for somebody to, you know, like, pay them to fly them, you know, wherever. And they would just fly in their own private jet, and then they they fly back to the bar, and they wait for the next person to come up. Um, and it was just this this crew of uh, you know ex World War II German uh, pilots. And um, anyways, that that uh, in, in, informed a bit of the song. But this is definitely our our first dip into the world music influenced part of this album. One thing that also informed this song, and I can't hear it, is apparently uh, it was structured around Susie Q. I don't hear it at all. Yeah. I yeah. can't even think of the Suzy Q melody though in my head. So Oh yeah, you can. It'd be like Doesn't sound anything like this. Okay. Doesn't sound anything like that. And uh, on on season three, when we talk about all of Credence's albums, we'll talk about that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Um, but not to really go further into this song, um, I actually do enjoy this song too. The Cricket Menace. It sounds extremely ahead of its time. Uh, that song, that sound, uh, certainly pops up later in a lot of our favorite industrial bands and synth bands. Um, just sounds very ahead of its time. And the only thing about this song that I would say, it just, it sounds like paranoia 
uh, done perfectly. Right. Yeah. This song, uh, I will mention this collective again on another song. This song definitely sounds like it could have inspired the whole approach that Mr. Bungle took to their album Disco Volante to me. Yeah, I could see that. One one thing I want to mention is there was like a phenomenon in, in, in American, not in American, but like in Western music um, in the 80s up through the early 90s of like being influenced by world music. And a big part of that was definitely like a um, like a like white hipsters co-opting world music. I'm not saying that's happening with Talking Heads or any of this. I'm saying that was definitely like a cultural movement that was happening. And it got really bad. Like, I mean, it got to be like, you know, Paul Simon's Graceland, which you know, I'm not saying it's a terrible album. I'm just saying it's oh, like the most whitewashed Good. take on on like world music. But it was definitely a thing that was happening. And it was done well, like this, Talking Heads. It was done definitely very well. I mean, there was definitely like this, this very whitewashed um, popular version of it that uh, was not. Like, and it, it all led, it all led to a culminating moment in pop culture and Mark Brainstad's life with Billy Joel's River of Dreams. Let's take a little let's take a little <laughs> listen. <laughs> oh man. Brings me back. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me want to do a couple cartwheels. All right, All right. Well, on that note, let's move on to move on. Which is very much, uh, I'm, I'm very influenced by Brian on that particular aspect, which is the, the cybernetic use of music, which is the use of systems. Put one system with another and see what happens. So that still applies very much to what we're doing. Next one, or You what? were going on in uh, the last interview with Nicky about perhaps using uh, reactionary type song writing, which was you sit down with an idea and you do paragraph one, paragraph two. Yes, three. yes. Have you done that with this one? That came out with this one, yeah. yeah. But that, actually, that's uh, that was used on... Um, somebody mentioned Sweet Thing earlier on from Diamond Dogs. That was used on that as well. It goes back that far. Mm. Diamond Dogs was the first album that I really incorporated uh, the William Burroughs cut-up technique. Mm. And I've been sort of moving in and out of that ever since. Sometimes not so much and sometimes quite a lot. But Diamond Dogs was an awful lot of cut-up on that. What is but I felt terribly embarrassed by the process at the time. 
um, because nobody else was doing it, mm. and I didn't want to say how I was writing things mm. like that, because mm. I thought well, people were going to think I'm nut, you know, some cutting up words and oh yeah, yeah I see, <laughs> cut up a few were very good, Daisy, <laughs> and sort of you know once we're a bit reticent about sort of. But then it became terribly fashionable, so I thought I'd tell everybody. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, that, of course, is blatantly romantic. <laughs> Interesting thing about that one is uh, the, the middle section. I was playing through some old tapes of mine um, at, uh, uh, on a sort of a, just a Revox thing, and one of them, um, accidentally, I played backwards. And I thought, God, that's beautiful. <laughs> so I must do that. And so, without listening to what it was originally, mm -hmm. we recorded that whole thing, note for note, as it was, backwards. And I did all the vocal harmonies with Tony Visconti backwards. If you play it backwards, you'll find it's all the young dudes. Now, this song, this song is a completely different... Uh, it's a change of pace uh, from African Night Flight. But it fits on this record well in the title, in the lyrical content, and the uh, the pace of it. The song has a lot of momentum. This song makes you feel, if this song was instrumental, it would still make you feel like you're moving on. Don't you guys agree? Yes, it sounds like a galloping horse. That, that, that what I wrote is like, in a song, this this the basic melody or the basic um, rhythm of this song would come in like as a bridge to a epic like climax of a song it's that it's like that drum roll that leads up to the big part that's your that's your baseline on this song and uh that's 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 the uh yeah it, it absolutely the momentum is crazy yeah i really i really like the um i'm also a fan mark is a fan of lists i'm a fan of any song that starts randomly calling out places that exist I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla. I'm a killer. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, it's bare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel, I've had my share, man. I like that, that Johnny Cash song where he talks about, like, I've been everywhere, man. That's a good one. That's a good um, one. Uh, I'm a fan of Dancing in the Street, you know, Tokyo! Uh, take it, you know, back to David Bowie. Um, and uh, this this one right here, I think, does a great job of that. The way he pronounces Old Kyoto just gets stuck in my head. Uh, his enunciation and the slight warble effect they put on his voice, it's uh, this Old Kyoto, it just gets stuck in there. I, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of this track. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, I think it's a pretty good, you know, I, I think this album, it's a little herky jerky, but it needs it. And I think that they sequenced it quite well. And I think having this track follow African night flight was a, and, but right before the, uh, mild insanity of the next track, it's, it's, it's a good move. <laughs> uh, this one. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I was going to say about the music is there, you'll hear this thing that sounds like a reverse, um, like something being played in reverse throughout the song a few times. And that's actually the song, all the young dudes, they reverse it on a tape player. And that's like your thing that kind of goes, they use it a few times in the song. Um, uh, this song is about, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, I think it's a little autobiographical. It's it David Bowie's always kind of on the, 
you know, if you choose to subscribe to the he's constantly evolving chameleon deal, that's there you go. Musically. Yeah. But then also he's pretty worldly dude. You know, he's 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 lived on a couple of different continents. And uh, yeah, there's he's always moving around. It's essentially like, yeah, definitely a metaphor for him. Um, with the concept of wanderlust. And I think he, it's, he has that too. So, you know, we all know those, those people that like just never can get comfortable. Like they always have to feel like they have to be on to the next thing. Then they always have to, you know, be traveling. And listen, I'm jealous of the traveling. It sounds great. But um, I also love a, a good home weekend as well. Um, but this is definitely like, like lyrics, like, um, you know, I might take a train or sail a dawn, might take a girl when I move on, I pack a bag and move on. Um, feeling like a shadow drifting like a leaf. You never stay long enough to really make an impression. You just keep. keep I love Eric. I love. I, I I I. This album has a lot of great different styles of uh, vocalizing, and even the the lines you just said, they start out very subdued, cool Bowie, and then when he 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 mentions being a shadow or shaking like a leaf. He jumps into manic Bowie really quick. It's a he turns he he does that switch in the middle of a verse. It's it's wonderful. There's a lot of good uh, vocal work on this record. He he uses his vo- his voice as an instrument on this album more so than uh, some of the previous ones we just heard. I think. Yeah, there's one line that I find heartbreaking, and it really is the the sad part of that too. Is you never like like I said, you never get to make the necessarily an impression on where you're at. Um, and he says, when the going's rough, I would love to find you somewhere in a place like that. Like you're always traveling for this feeling that doesn't actually exist. It's just this, this, this idea you have, you're going to find it somewhere at some time. And it's, it's, it's that other side to having wanderlust. It's kind of heartbreaking. It's a great lyric. It's a great song. It's a lot of fun. And, um, it never, yeah, it never stops moving. It makes you feel like you can't relax. Uh, which I would say is thematically appropriate. So for me, like while this song doesn't really have a, a satisfying conclusion or any big payoffs, uh, it's just that one constant uh, rhythmic melody. Like I had mentioned earlier, it sounds like a galloping horse that you're riding. Um, but Bowie's vocal performance and the kind of ghostly background vocals uh, in the production just make it all worthwhile. <laughs> Actually, yeah, is this is this the one that has the ah uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and while the ah are happening, there's also this ooh, it's uh, exactly. it's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and you're right, Mark. This is this kind of gets us back to low where the song's kind of in. This one ends quicker than I think we want it to. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one, um, and. You know, musically, like I said, no payoffs, but Bowie's vocal um, delivery and all of the little tricks that they're doing in the production on headphones, it's uh, it's A+. plus. It's a good one. It's a surprising song. How do you pronounce this? Yasasin? Yasasin? Yasasin! Yasasin. Turkish for long live. Yes, I always like to pronounce it. Why? Assassin. And that makes it sound like it's a Gary Newman album. (laughs) 
assassin. Or you could say it like a millennial, yas assassin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, since you, if you put it that way, you get to be the one that uh, leads us off here. How do you feel about this track? So uh, Bowie does world music. It's a it's a funk Turkish uh, Turkish reggae thing going on here. Um, it's essentially laying down the template for Secret Chiefs Three to add a little surf guitar to it. Um, Fucking asshole! You stole it, stole it right out of my. I can scratch that off the list. <laughs> I definitely, um, yeah, I definitely think the Secret Chiefs they they use this as the template. This this is the template for their whole sound. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate Bowie really going for it with sound, uh, without sounding like he's co-opting any culture here to co- go back to that African night flight uh, that Eric was talking about. Uh, the bass line here could really belong on Young Americans with that reggae uh, kind of, I don't know what what you technically call that type of guitar playing. It's like an upswing. Um, what is it, Eric? Yeah, no, you, you got it. Yeah it's, yeah, it's just when you're strumming, you do an upstrum on the offbeat. Like, ooh, yeah. But this and that's and that's yeah. Carlos, Carlos Alomar is like the master at that kind of thing. Yeah, he was Carlos Alomar. This for this whole section of what we've decided is the best Bowie band. He he was, he, it was Bowie and Carlos on all these records, and he was kind of like, he, he was had as much input, almost as much as David Bowie did, I think. And whenever yeah. you have a song like this. I think you get the weirdness from Bowie, and I think Carlos is the one that makes it all work. Well, what was right. what was funny about this song was um, <laughs> reggae in the '70s was much more popular with like your um, your skinhead movement in Britain, not the not racist skinhead, but your your like you know uh, your the specials, your not, white not punk the kids. specials. What's the other what's the, what's the other one? No, 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 we're talking we're talking uh, about the, the, the yeah madness. Thank no, you. We're talking yeah. about. Yeah, we're talking about the the ska skinheads that yeah, were part exactly. of exactly yeah tied to Jamaica kind of right. In a way. So actually, Carlos Alomar, Dennis Davies, uh, they didn't know how to play like this version of reggae, and so Tony Visconti had to teach him the whole like up strum uh, on the offbeat and everything. So it's just a funny backstory that that the uh, the black guys in the band had to uh, you know they were like I don't know what you what you guys are talking about. <laughs> Let's keep going down that path. Um, the, I, I read anecdotally from the quietest, uh, the quietest.com is a great article on this album. Just Google the quietest and then uh, lodger. And, uh, they, uh, apparently Brian Eno's antics is, uh, by, by this point, Brian Eno and Bowie were kind of, uh, uh, the honeymoon was over and <laughs> they weren't nearly as enthused to work with each other on this record as the, the last two. Brian, Brian, you know, Brian, you know, was basically Mr. Mixelplex this whole, this whole recording. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really starting to wear on them. And I don't know if it was this song. It might be another one, but he was doing that, uh, the flashcard bullshit. And Carlos Alomar literally was just like, this is bullshit. You're making us do this. And, uh, yeah, you got, you got this, this rhythm section of all these, uh, these, these black guys from New York having this, 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 uh, you know, uh, pixie from another dimension try to tell them how to you know play their instruments backwards they uh we're getting tired of it so yeah. <laughs> kind of pretty yeah. amusing yeah but like no it was like it, they were like well we know how to play reggae but what you're asking isn't reggae they're basically talking about ska before it was a word and tony visconti had to had to show them what that new like uh the yeah that new white british reggae uh sound was 
I don't want to mix med- I don't want to mix uh, anecdotes here. They didn't have a problem with Tony. Brian Eno was no, the one getting no, on their nerves. <laughs> no, I, I just thought it was funny that Tony had to teach him. No, yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, Brian Eno was like, yeah, and now put a blindfold on and go down into that isolation chamber and we'll <laughs> and see what comes <laughs> yeah. and see what comes out of playing the guitar with your toes. Yeah, it, yeah, it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it just sounded it sounded kind of fun and kind of crazy and very frustrating all all at once. Yeah, I was just gonna say, Stephen, I wonder what that would sound like with that whole I don't know, uh, that recording session of the song would be like, or, you know, I, it's funny. It's funny. It, it's funny. No, it's funny. You guys mentioned that, but also I, uh, the guy that wrote this article with the quietest, I emailed him thanking him. I was like, wow, where'd you get all this information on lodger? And oddly enough, he had a, he sent me to a Dropbox, and he had some recordings of some discussions at the time. And, this is a this is kind of groundbreaking here. I don't know why this is more popular, but on these recordings we 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 have a discussion between David Bowie, Brian Eno, Tony Visconti, and Carlos Alomar, and uh, it's uh, and Adrian Blue. Oh. So it's yeah, it's let's let's take a listen. Oh, wow, I don't think Adrian's even on this song. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> he's still in the studio. He's on. The, he's in the studio still. Look back in anger. Look, look, look back in anger. Hey. Mr. Bowie, this isn't working at all. There is a there is a denseness to the air in this room, and I need to pull out my cards once again, my strategy cards. Brian, I ah, come on, really? Ah, God. Ah. Sorry. It's just, do you want a flat album or do you want one that soars? Now, oh yes, this is a favorite game, of course. Okay. Dave, come on over here to this corner of the room. Look at these rocks, these stones. Do you yes, see these stones? Brian, I've been telling you for almost three years now, I I see the stones. I, I get the stones. I touch the stones. I know what the stones mean. The stones are the stones. I am a stone. You are a stone. Stone. Yes. Okay, uh, Dave, look at these stones. Each stone has the name of one of your musicians. Okay, this first rock has the name of your guitarist, Carlos Alomar. Yes, this bullshit again. Uh, this rock right here has guest guitarist Adrian Ballou. Heavens to Murgatroyd, I do not know how many times we're going to have to go through this, Brian. now that every band member has been designated by a stone, we can finally play Game 17B in my Obelique Strategies. (laughs) I love this game. So, you take your rock, and you look in front of you, and do you see those glass bottles, Dave? Well, the name on the rock is the designated player, and you're going to throw it at those glass bottles. There's one on the speaker on a desk chair, there's one on a nice chest. And you're gonna throw it and it's gonna shatter that glass bottle, but look behind it. I've set up a whole array of musical instruments. 
Why, you've got a Rhodes keyboard, you've got a grand piano, an acoustic guitar, electric guitar, a bass guitar, you've got a drum set. Whatever name on that stone shatters the most glass on an instrument. Well, that's the instrument they have to play moving forward. And Dave, if you miss all those instruments, <laughs> well, you, my boy, you must play them all. <laughs> oh, my, isn't that deliciously, deliciously sinister? Isn't that sound delightful? Damn it, Brian, this is three goddamn years of this. Yes, I, uh, Brian, in the time you have sat there to explain the rules to this, what I just might call Lynchian game, I don't really know what I mean by that, but I do, I, uh, I, I, I jotted down all the lyrics for the rest of the album. And, uh, I, I wonder if we were not lodged right here in place listening to you talk forever, if maybe we could get more done. Brian, your rules of your games, your games are so complex. The time it takes you to explain them is holding us back now. At first you broke us free, but now I truly, no offense, friends, you're making us be stuck in place. You're, you're lodging us. You're making us, you're, you're, you're making us stuck in place lodging us when we should be lodgers we should be moving from place to place a person a person brian that moves from place to place that's it movement place to place hard to move when he's got us locked in these little rooms down with uh, security cameras filming our every action what, what's up with that brian that is key to the process seclusion is genius no what it sounds like is some bullshit but uh, yes thank you carlos i'm always Carlos always has the best input. He is to the point. He is from the streets. And Brian Eno, this, I think, is, uh, they say, we might be... Listen, I don't want to look back in anger at all this, but that's where you're, you're pushing us to here. Ah, well, then do it your way. Fine, I'll add a little tweak of a synth at, in post-production or whatever, but I'm walking out this door now, and if you're lucky, I won't unleash a swarm of angry crickets in the studio with the door locked behind me. Goodbye! Well, now that the music is outside, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, you, you took that okay. All right, uh, <laughs> one, two, three, four. like to thank you for listening to another rip-roaring episode, time-traveling episode of Pod Like a Hole. If you've enjoyed this episode covering Lodger, there's many episodes in the back catalog, like Low and Diamond Dogs, and the entire Nine Inch Nails discography. You'll find many opinions, many laughs, 
and many historical documents of Mr. David Bowie and Tony Visconti. So if you like that and you'd like to support the show, please consider our Patreon at Patreon backslash pod like a hole. That's Patreon backslash pod like a hole. Donate two or four dollars a month or nothing at all. We'll still be here. But please consider Patreon backslash pod like a hole. Now back to the show. Oh, that got that got heated. That was wild, even by oh, their standards. That wow. was something. Wow. Yeah, they definitely needed to go their separate ways after this. One hundred percent. Oh man, that explains all the strange instrumentation on African Night Flight with the 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 drills and the drums and the knives and stuff. I'm I, that stuff was lying around for a reason. That's right. Wow. <laughs> oh boy. Well, now at least you know. We also know the origin of Brian Eno's haircut. That's something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, all that aside um eric you never really got to tell us how you feel about uh why assassin uh, it's a song about like just a really hard-working um you know immigrant uh in a country and just you know how it feels to just i'm just trying to get to the day i'm just trying to do my thing and you know there is a lot of hatred towards me and it's kind of taken that I think it's based on a Turkish Turkish immigrant, which explains the Turkish violins in the background, which there's a definite reggae beat to the song, but then the, the violins just really make this track. It's, it's, it's very cool. And um, it's definitely the, the, the point of view of this song is from a Turkish immigrant. Um, and it's, it's just super empathetic character study. Um, I, I got to admit, I like the Turkish ska. I, I enjoy it. It is bonkers. Um, it sounds like nothing I've ever heard before, and I'll call that a success. I enjoy it quite, yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, I think it's a pretty cool track. I, I, I definitely, yeah, the, the Turkish sound, I enjoy it um, on this track. The opening drum roll that Davies comes in with is awesome. I bet you guys both know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, when he, when he hits the... Um, the temp, not the timpani, uh, but like, yeah, he hits like a like a different kind of uh, snare, like a really taut snare, and it goes, yeah, it goes yeah. so good. Yeah, the bass line in this track, it takes it's one of it's one of those bass lines that takes a walk, takes a stop, stops, and then keeps walking again, and uh, I, I I dig that. It's got a good groove to it. How I described it was, uh, it's just uh, strutting down the market bazaar. That's how I said it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Fair enough. Would you hear Would you hear this song in uh, in uh, in uh, Moss Eisley? Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, for, for I really the 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 string section is cool, and I think Brian Eno is doing some kind of effect on it. They're kind of phasey and warbly, and uh, they're definitely not untouched. The strings. <laughs> And it's a part of the song. I, I maybe we'll talk about Gary Newman more another day, but Gary Newman didn't get this weird, but there's something in the song that makes me think of a uh, early eighties, Gary Newman, because Gary Newman started, he didn't get this uh, world music. -y, but this baseline and the pacing of this song, it, it reminds me of some of that mid mid section, early eighties, Gary Newman. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Mm. 
I, something about it's reminding me. Maybe maybe it is the name Y Assassin. Sounds like I Assassin. That could just be it. But and and one thing I like in this track a lot is that um, you guys not know the section where he says, uh, you know, now listen to me, where he sings it like that. Yeah. Yeah. For whatever reason, it really reminds me of Trent Reznor. Huh. I'm not sure. Huh. But uh, the the the. It, 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 the line that really gets to me that just that just sticks sticks in my in into my ribs is the uh, you want to fight but I don't want to leave, and just that kind of being the plight of you know the immigrant that they just being very cognizant that a lot of people don't like them but they're they're putting their roots in they're they're establishing their homes and they're not going to leave and uh, it's just a really it's just a it's just a cool line where he uh, Bowie cannot be more out of himself and trying to be empathetic. Um, which is, you know, can be a stretch for him. Uh, and I, and I think it's fantastic. Did you guys catch like Bowie trying to do, uh, an Arabic, uh, delivery when he sings a resonant world, he really carries the note out like you would hear from a Middle Eastern singer. Right. No, I didn't Uh, notice that. Yeah. Uh, I read about it and then I made sure to listen for it. And I was like, damn, he really tried to go for it on this one. It's pretty cool sounding. It's not bad. Yeah. And I, another delivery, another, another delivery on here that I like is the, what is this? What is this? And the whole call and response of the, the, the band pretty much chanting. Yes. You know, that's pretty neat. Yep. It's song, another one. There's like I said, there's a lot of great uh, vocal work on this album that just goes all, all over the place. Not lazy at all. The last thing I'll say is I it did make me reflect on my feelings with reggae and ska, uh, which I, I don't think about a lot. Um, and you know, I definitely don't listen to a lot of reggae, but there, there we talked about it on here. There were like there's a couple of tracks that were especially like the really politically charged ones that are that are very interesting from from its kind of inception. And then, and then ska, I do really like the specials and madness. Uh, th- those were some pretty good bands. And then, but I always thought I didn't like ska because come growing up in the nineties, it was like Southern California, like Christian ska, your, your mustard plugs and your, um, your, your like there, but you know, fuck like, uh, like, I don't know if you guys ever listened to that operation Ivy, that, that first album. But that's just a really good example of like how you can do ska and punk and keep it edgy and, 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 and do what you can. So I just have a complicated relationship and, and definitely uh, given ska too much thought. But um, this reminded me that there is some really good ska. Yeah, ska music is just really not my jam. I, I, I've tried, but I think I've only been exposed to the nonsense that you were kind of listing rather than right. probably what's considered good. Um, right. I mean, I've heard Madness. I've heard... Uh, fuck. The specials There's is... some others. The specials is probably like, the best of all time. They're so good. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even consider, like, the Mighty Mighty Boston's. They're probably considered that new type of ska. Where right, they almost exactly. Where like, yeah. into big band. Um, oh. But, yeah. Yeah, and big, big band is your jam though, because I have seen your cherry popping daddy's poster. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> My God, squirrel nut zippers. Uh, uh. <laughs> Actually, they were that song. Hell was a great song. Actually, they were an example of a good version of that. 
that kind of music. Listen to Squirrel Nut Zipper's Hell. That's a good song. All right, sorry. That is a good song. My bad. <laughs> All right, Stephen, are you ready to set sail? Yes. Time to pick up the pace once again with the red sails. travel themes at work here uh this is the last song on side one if we're listening to it on record uh we got adrian Ballou channeling some robert fripp guitar work on this track um you guys like to talk about how uh they piece together adrian Ballou's guitar pieces for this album yeah on on some of these if i understand correctly he would record a couple guitar solos and then Brian Eno would put them in a blender and then play them back on a keyboard. Is that what happened? Similar. I think they basically just chopped and screwed them. Uh, kind of similar to what Trent Reznor did with Adrian Ballou on the recording of The Fragile. Um, he would record like I can't catch a break. I know. It's just, from what I understand, they would um, only play uh, him fragments of the song, and he would essentially solo over that, and then they would just try to fit him in and chop him up. As, that's what I was reading, at least. Yeah, um, you got, no, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, this song sounds like it's, uh, it's a bridge song towards the sounds that he's going to master and perfect on his next record, which is Scary Monsters. Uh, that's with Robert Fripp coming back. Um, but the music propels you through the cha- uh, the song uh, kind of chaotically, but Bowie tries to keep the ship from toppling over is kind of how I envision this song uh, with his vocal work. It's a good song, um, but I want to hear more what you guys think. I do, I do definitely think that idea of, of David Bowie trying to like hold things together on this track is perfect. Uh, it's the kind of song that it sounds like it could, you know, it, things are falling apart and it, it could burst at any time. And uh, that, that definitely, the way he manically yells, the hinterlands, the hinterlands. It's, uh, it sounds a little bit uh, exasperated and, and manic. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good, weird, moving track. Uh, definitely Adrian Ballou's odd guitar work. I think this is the first... It's not the first time he pops up in the album, but that style of guitar playing is really pronounced on this one. There's a there's a guitar solo on this track that sounds like it's upside down, turned around, and 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 and, and, and blended. 
Oh god, the guitar. Yeah, his guitar work is insane in this track. It's, yeah, it. it it's, it's definitely it, it rises it's in the same it vein. from a, a, a moderate track to an excellent track in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a pretty good track. I, I think that, uh, you know, Carlos Alomar's got a pretty uh, catchy guitar guitar line going on. It's really basic. Down, 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 down. It's more of a percussion percussion based song. Sure. There's a there's a little bit of saxophone on it for you, Eric. Yeah, and there and actually the synth work on the song is my favorite. Like on the album, it's a very pronounced synth riff that's happening throughout this track. Um, and the, yeah, the drumming uh, Dennis Davies is killing it on the song too. Yeah, it's it's a full band workout. The whole band's on this one, uh, and not the best song on the album, not the worst. It's pretty pretty middling, but it, it fits in with the theme of what we're doing so far with traveling, and it, it allows us to yell the hinterlands. So that's important. Th- thank goodness for that. Did you know that uh, and, that when they were practicing for their um, Let's dance sessions. That there's a Stevie Ray Vaughan version of this song out there somewhere. Um, can't touch Adrian Ballou's work though. It's uh, significantly. Uh, so I would say it's, it's it's significantly less fun than this song. I will look it up. Speaking of other artists, the uh, the violin work on this record by that gentleman named Simon House. Yes, we. We didn't mention that he used to be in Hawkwind, which I think is important. Oh shit! Hawkwind was what uh, Lemmy's band. Yeah, it was the Lemmy's first band, which was kind of a psych metal band, which continued for years after Lemmy left. Um, so that's a fun connection. Yeah, good band actually. They're, they're pretty in, like so ahead of its time. They got some good songs, some good albums. So Red Sails is pretty good. Yeah, lyr- but- lyrically, lyrically. All of the romance of having that wanderlust and jumping from country to country is kind of coming to a head. He said he was inspired um, by reading about uh, like people in the Navy that got lost at sea. And um, this song is definitely about being lost at sea when that's your life. Um, I feel roughed up and frightened, nearly pinned down sometimes. Red sail action. Wake up in the wrong town. Boy, I really get around. Um and it's just kind of like that, dis, like how you're just just disoriented. You're moving so much when that wanderlust catch up, catches up with you, and you're just always somewhere new. This is definitely looking at the negative side of that. Um, uh, I love the line, though. Um, it's not necessarily negative. It's just like that the consequences of that. But I love the line, um, like graffiti on the wall, um, that keeps us all in tune. Like basically, you know you stop and you actually look at the street art and then you can kind of, Oh yeah, this is where I am. This is what, you know, this is the culture here. Like this is, this is, this is what's happening. Uh, using that as your kind of North star. I find, I find very interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fun track. I didn't mean to imply it wasn't. I just, it, it's not one of the big standouts to me, but that, that Adrian blue, uh, guitar shred elevates this song jump right into side two which kicks off with dj i think it was that well this particular character was a very depressed dj i mean it's the the opening line is i'm home and incurably i've lost my job and i'm incurably ill you think this is easy realism um and it is terribly 
sort of, his only satisfaction in life is that now he's got a job as a DJ, is that his boss, his, his old boss, is now the person that dances for him. And so that is his whole watching his boss. He just becomes a puppet in his hands. Sort of the idea behind it. Having seen all these DJs in New York, and a, New York is one big disco now. This this track is always uh, it's always been one of my favorite David Bowie songs. Somehow early on in my David Bowie discovery period, I discovered this track, and it's been on many mixtapes and CDs over the last two decades. It's a very catchy song. It was the uh, this the second single off the album or the first one? It's it's there's three singles off the album. This is one of them. Yep, and you can see why. The song is catchy as all hell. This song basically uh, set the stage for like the first four Blur albums, if you ask me. So, and yet this, and yet this is not the song that that Blur actually ripped an entire riff from either. But yeah, you're 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 spot on. Yeah. Um, no, the the pacing the pacing and the subject matter are right up Blur's alley. The song is about this is the most like now we're not we're not worldly anymore. We're now um, reflective now. Right. We're reflective. Right. Exactly. He's singing this song. This is the David Byrne song. Like this is the one that sounds like David Byrne. I'm at home. Lost my job. Like this, like at least in the beginning, like I actually think, I think Bowie makes it his own by the time you hit the first chorus. But when it first starts out, it is undeniably talking heads ish. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yes. At some parts, it's kind of just making fun of the the shallowness of the club scene. Um, but when it's at its most reflective, he's talking about life as a musician. Like, I am what I play. Uh, and that is why I always have to be creating. The moment I stop is the moment I start to die. And it's just that you're just stuck in this endless loop. I do like the references to Dan Dare. I feel like Dan Dare lies down. I had to, I had to Google who Dan Dare was. I can tell you who Dan Dare is. Dan Dare was a, uh, I believe he was a pulp comic guy from the UK that flew flew airplanes. You got it. Huh? You got it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I bet you. I bet you. Grant Morrison has referenced him from time to time as well. No, but Garth Ennis has actually wrote comics about Dan Dare. I believe. Oh shit! Well, there you go. Um, yeah. So that's that's this. It's it's probably I would. I would say lyrically, it's one of the more it's it's on the shallow end as far as the the depth of lyrics on this album, but it's it's still very meta and self reflective, um, which I appreciate. Uh, I think it is supposed to be kind of shallow though. The shallowness kind of plays into the subject matter of the track. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, and and it is catchy as all hell. It's a great single. Absolutely. I don't know why I don't think of this when I think of top Bowie singles. I don't, but I should because it, it deserves. Yeah, this is actually the second single off the album. The first was uh, Boys Keep Swinging. And uh, yeah, that persistent uh, barroom piano does it for me. The Eno uh, acid strings work really well. And musically, 
at the end where he does the whole like, I am a DJ and da 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 da. I've got believers. If you listen closely, Adrian Blue starts doing a bunch of wonky guitar stuff in the background that closes out the track. Um, oh yeah. And I think, did you guys, did, did either of you watch the video? Oh, it's a great video. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Video is fantastic. Yeah. So the video, the first half is him being a DJ, walking into a studio and he's like knocking things over and things are exploding and he's not being a very good DJ. <laughs> and then I thought what was interesting is that the second half of it is him just walking down the street in New York with a bunch of people and having a good time. And I thought about it. It's one of the few times you really see David Bowie just kind of hanging out and chilling with other people acting like other people having fun. Yeah. There's no, there's no air of a uh, mysticism or, or anything to it. It's just really normal people with a night on the town. And well, I, I like I, that. I would say yes and no. I, the, I mean, people are just grabbing and kissing him, right? Like, like it's that the belief. Well, yeah. Well, Eric, yeah. Well, come on. When you and I hang out with Mark, that's what you do to, to me. I, I so just, it's just, a, I, you know, listen, that's how I say, I appreciate you as a friend. <laughs> a nice warm. No, I kind of get what you're saying there. Is that yes and no? They're having a good time, but also they're all kind of focusing on them. Yeah, but it, it's shot in such a way where it just seems down to earth. No, I, I, I had the same thought though, where it's like he's on the streets, he's around people. He's not like this controlled, this controlled like opera stage. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, it's, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not Lou Reed. It's not Iggy Pop. It's not Brian Eno. It's just people you know, being a musician and creating stuff for people, you are, you are basically trapped to your work. Like you can't exist without it. Uh, but then it's all worth it if you have believers. And it's totally like a sarcastic line there at the end. Um, but then that's, that's where the video goes where he's, people are just kissing him and that he's, he's amongst his flock there. Um, but I goddamn great song. Mark, I haven't heard from you. This song is great. Um, it's, it's really great. Uh, just a sad guy playing records without a job. Uh, let's not forget that DJ is also uh, his real initials, David Jones, and how he turns into the person from the music that he plays. Um, so uh, definitely can see the David Byrne comparison in terms of singing and the songwriting here. Um, as messy as this song is, it really holds a traditional song structure that you really, really haven't seen much of on this record so far. Uh, but it's really held together by that rhythm section. Um, Adrian Blue's guitar playing, uh, just you get that sense of improvised soloing. Uh, I guess Ballou said that it was akin to scanning through the radio waves and picking up uh, different guitar solos from different songs, from different stations. Um, the song pretty much has it all. You got Bowie singing in falsetto. You got some kiss kisses into the mic. Um and I really, really like that ominous ending. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, yes. The song is great. The song is great. Um, big fan. Yeah, I can see why it was a single. And uh, yeah, I think it belongs in any David Bowie greatest hits album. Just it works. And it was played live for the first time on the outside tour in 1995. Wow. It was fantastic, that guys. Long. I loved it. It was. I loved watching that live. <laughs> you, didn't, you don't. You don't remember. Um, great. Yep. So DJ, unanimous applause, and we're gonna get the same thing from the next track, which picks up the pace again with "Look Back" and "Anger." Okay. Next one is. Um, um, it's about. <clears throat> I had this thought about. Um, 
angels, and I thought, well, go from angels, and, and the angel of death is always the character that is most revered and thought of with sort of an austere uh, sense of unwell-being. Um, but I, I thought, well, supposing we had a tatty um, angel of death, one a bit sort of a bit grabby round the edges. And so this one is, is sort of an angel of death who spends his time in restaurants and cafes waiting for somebody to die. Sort of, are you ready? Nobody really listens. And he's sort of got crumpled wings and he spends his time drinking coffee and looking through magazines until somebody's going to die, but nobody does. That sort of was the idea of... <laughs> that was the idea, and it's called Look Back in Anger. It was irresistible. Because once we'd done the waiting so long, da 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 da, it asked to have waiting so long, I've been waiting so, waiting so. On Pod Like a Hole, if we had, uh, for every episode, if we had an award for most improved song, and by that I mean one you obviously knew existed, you, you, you've listened to it a couple of times, but then when asked to sit down and look at it while you listen to it, you decided, oh, this is fucking amazing, that would be this song for me. I uh, Coming away from this record, I had a lot of positive reactions. But one of the most was that look back in anger. I just I didn't realize it was as good of a song as it is. It's a great track. So I will go ahead and tell you this this is my favorite song on the record as well. And you know why it is, Mark? I'll tell you why, Mark. I know why. Because when I listen to this song, I think it's the template for LCD Sound System's whole career. Yeah, I could see that. I absolutely could see that. The rhythm section um, in this band or the whole band is tight as a fucking drum uh dennis davis is putting on a goddamn clinic and uh carlos alomar with that guitar solo fucking mm-hmm. fantastic forget forget it yeah it's so good this is also this is also my my uh my favorite song on here as well that's 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 hilarious um yeah i it his singing is 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 fantastic, and he goes very dramatic in the song, which is fine. Um, and, but but the the start of the show is Dennis Davies, like his drum beat. He's doing two beats at the same time, and it's it's insane. And um, and he's doing like this bass, this this pretty like basic like riveting rock drum beat, and then he's doing this hi hat work that does not fit at all, but it does fit. Like if you if you listen to it, like it's just it's just this this puzzle piece of a drum beat that he's doing live it's so good it's so goddamn good um i uh one thing that i thought was interesting and i would not have picked up on this because we have not done man who sold the world yet um obviously i know the lyrics but i haven't given them the uh critical analysis that i do on the show 
but it's been speculated that this, the lyrics of this song are the same encounter from Man Who Sold the World, but from a different perspective. And, hmm. um, you know, it's, you know, you're talking about the singers talk, you know, passed by somebody, they're in a diner. Um, the person has crumpled wings. Nobody's paying attention to him as he flips through a magazine, but it's essentially, you know, uh, a fallen angel. And um, the whole, like, I thought you died a long, long time ago uh, is maybe the story of when that main character did die. And uh, because it's basically going, he's going with this uh, angel of death uh, to whatever's next. And it's, it's, it's been speculated that it's it's the, uh, the B-side uh, or the mirror image to uh, to that. Um, Interesting. I'll, I'll look into that. I'll, uh, I'll compare them. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, yeah, I just love it. It's, it's, it is a, it is a super engaging song and um, it just, yeah, uh, on an album of nonstop wonder so far, I've been totally in, in it to win it all the way. This one just, it crests in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's perfectly placed. It really, it, it's a, uh, it, it's very pleasant to listen to. It, it's propulsive. The Dennis Davies drums, or you're like you're right. He's he's doing a couple of different things at once. And um, what I like about that guitar solo is that Carlos Alomar's guitar solo. They he kind of runs through it twice, and it's so good. I'm glad he does it twice. Uh, it, it's it's. It's not flashy. It's just really, uh, it, it shucks and jives. And, um, and what I mean by twice is that, uh, he does it, he does it d- 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 two measures in a row and where once would have been enough. He goes through it one more time. And I appreciate that because it sounds so good. And the, I, I, I like the, uh, the waiting so long I've been way. I like that weird delivery and his, dramatic delivery of look look back in anger is wonderful uh it's a it's a it's a good showpiece for everybody doing what they can do very well on this track um and yeah the video is uh david bowie and these videos are pretty cool these are pre-mtv but they put a lot of work into them i feel like it's david bowie in a studio he's a painter and it's kind of a dorian gray type thing where he paints a photo of himself but it's the reverse and his face starts melting. That's, that's about it, but it looks cool. And also the song is notable because, uh, Oasis named an album. Was it don't look back in anger? You got it. And you know that they did that knowingly. And yeah, I, I think that, uh, this became one of my favorite David Bowie songs. So it's a, it's a great one. I just found a uh, a link that I sent you guys, and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Um, I have yet to actually take a look at this uh, little YouTube clip, but uh, in 2018, Tony Visconti um, stripped away all but the drum tracks to really highlight how much work Dennis Davis was doing on this, um, and, you, and he breaks it down uh, to essentially how the recording process took place. So we'll make sure to include that in the show notes to just show you how uh, just awesome. Uh, Dennis is fucking drumming his heart out, and this is apparently is one of his signature tracks that he did with David Bowie. Yeah, and this—that's actually part of that video that I was talking about that Dennis Davis's son put together. Oh, really? Tony Visconti, yeah, Tony Visconti's on that as well. So 
it all ties together. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah, that, yeah. I just just to cap it one more time. The lyrical content is awesome. It may or may not be a sequel to Minutes um, of the World, but I feel like thematically it fits in with like half the songs on Heathen too. Just like this whole Angel of Death and and uh, going away to die kind of thing. Anyways. Very interesting. Well, I just realized, and I just realized something cool is that all three singles are in a row. And the third and last single on the record, well, which was the first single that came out, but it's the last one we'll talk about, is Boys Keep Swinging. Very catchy little throwback. It, like it's the only song on this whole trilogy where it sounds like he's just pulling out one more glam rock song out of the bag just to, for the fans. Um, it is a it is a sassy little sarcastic um, take on. I I do feel like in a way it, it is a sarcastic like pro feminism song. You're talking about how good the boys have it, you know. Heaven loves you, the clouds part for you. Nothing stands in your way when you're a boy. Life is a pop of the cherry when you're a boy. Um, but they, but he also, you know, goes in to talk about how, and you're also the first in line to die when a war happens. It is a fun little thing. Um, definitely not my favorite song on the album, but I think if any song off this birth Britpop, it would be uh, this song. In fact... All right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In fact, Blur took uh, a a portion of the song, especially the bass line. M O R. Lyrically, I was thinking girls and boys, but uh, I, I definitely said that right. there's elements of Blur going through here. Yeah, yeah, and I and I like Blur. Blur's a Blur's a fun well. Band. And who knows if we'll ever talk about them again on this podcast? Oh boy, it's a uh, Robin Thicke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think podcast. I think I, I I like I like this song. I always have. Um, it was the most popular single off the album. And uh, I think it's a little subvers- subversive. Um, one cool tidbit about this is that Adrian Blue said that uh, David Bowie basically wrote the song kind of for him. Not, not, not about him, but he just said that, like, hey, Adrian, like, this song reminds me of you. And, uh, like, that's cool, you know. He, he enjoyed hearing that. Eric does kind of say the glam thing. I can kind of see the glam thing. It doesn't sound very glammy to me. But it does have that all the young dudes energy to it, if you will, about the content. 
to me, it kind of like reminds me of like a cabaret or something. Just the 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 the, the, the sassy cattiness Eric mentioned to it. I, I could uh, I could imagine uh, Liza Minnelli singing this song. <laughs> I could. I think the uh, the the glam rock is the the repetitive guitar and piano. Dun, 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 dun. Like think think like the last minute of waiting for the man by Velvet underground that like that kind of, that kind of glam rock sound. Um, and, and just the attitude, just the, the, uh, the gender, the gender bending kind of attitude. I, that's right. So that let's talk about the video. Yeah. Uh, that definitely does play into the glam thing, the gender bending thing. The video starts off with, uh, David Bowie and it basically like, you know, uh, uh, thin white plastic soul mode, just like prancing and singing and, and really just mugging for the camera, doing his Elvis thing when he does that. And <laughs> yeah. uh, then all of a sudden you get three different David Bowie's in drag, three different kinds. Uh, you know, two of them are just kind of gussied up uh, cocktail waitress Bowie's. And the third's an old lady in a sweater. <laughs> it's just <laughs> very interesting. And, uh, yeah, the video, when the video cut to that, I, I, I didn't know the video went in that direction. I, 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 uh, laughed out loud. I thought it was very <laughs> bold and, and hilarious. Yeah. It's a great video. This is my favorite video from the, uh, yeah, the it, it's all capped off with, uh, Adrian Ballou has been doing a lot of weird stuff on this record. I think his odd solo at the end of this one is one of my favorite parts. Yeah. The song fades out with him like strangling his guitar. Right. He's killing the guitar. <laughs> and then Brian Eno's probably chopping it up and re-killing it. Right. And that's how this, this track <laughs> ends. It's uh I I kind of agree with Eric a little bit. It's Bowie's return to the, his glam days of like Ziggy and Diamond Dogs, but put through the filter of his Berlin sound. So sonically it doesn't sound like that glam style, but you guys I'm, I'm right in agreement with, with Eric that it does remind me of that. And maybe it's because of the lyrical content. Um, the video is, is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's bonkers. Apparently Carlos Alomar is the one playing the drums on this song. Um, and I'm in my notes, I said exactly what Steve said about, uh, Adrian Ballou fighting his guitar and, um, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's not one of my personal favorites, uh, but it certainly is not a detractor for this album. Well, um, uh, it, just just a comment on your color, Carlos Alomar on drums. This is the yeah. one where where Brian Eno was like, "Okay, sillies, everybody grab a card. That's the instrument you're going to play." So everybody had to swap instruments. And um, yeah, no, actually, that was that was Bowie's idea. Oh, okay. Um, it might have been there. Might have been two things going on here. They might have been playing with the cards, but David Bowie's idea for them to swap instruments was uh, David Bowie's idea. And apparently, um, Carlos Alomar held the drums down okay, but uh, Dennis Davies' bass playing was so bad that Visconti had to come in and uh, just erase it all and replay it. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. That's what happens (laughs) when you like fucking play games in the studio. Visconti had to pull a Billy Corgan. And uh, just say, nope, I'm redoing it all. Or, or at least the baseline. I will say the baseline, the, Visconti's baseline, though, is something to behold in the song. It is so fucking good. Oh, they could have had, if Visconti was such a good bass player, he could have he could have been the bass player for all these records. It would have been great. But, Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right, we got two more tracks. One I like a lot more than the other. The one I like less is the next song. 
repetition. And he looks straight through you when you ask him how the kids are. You get home around seven, cause the chef is real old. And he could have had a Cadillac, if the school had taught him right. Eric, there's a lot of good lyrical red meat in this track. Why don't you share with us what the song's about? I, I do like how you drop that it's, that it's not your favorite track and then you make me introduce it. Uh, that's, yeah, I, I know your routine. Um, but I actually, I'm, I'm pretty good with this song. It is musically, there's not a real, there, it's not a catchy song. And musically, there's not a giant hook. But this is one of his most... It's not even political. It's just like it's just a song about the plight of abused women and and and, and a, a a situation of domestic violence. Um, he he had stated that he had um, seen in his travels more incidents of domestic violence than he was comfortable, like even processing, and um, he just never understand why that could be a thing. And he really set out to sing a song, just, you know, painting a picture of it. Here we have Johnny. He likes to use the name Johnny when he sings about, especially like I'm afraid of Americans, just like gun-toting assholes. In this, Johnny's basically Joe Licker, American <laughs> from Red and Stimpy. Um, he's uh, expecting food on the table, but it's cold. He's imagining like an Earth 2 version of his wife. That he could have married instead. Um, and then he, you know, goes, I guess boys keep swinging in this song too, because he, uh, he definitely is an asshole and he beats, and he beats his, uh, he beats his girl in this. And, uh, I guess the bruises won't show. She wears long sleeves. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, um, I, uh, I really appreciate what he's trying to do here. As a song, it's not not the most fun on the album, not the most engaging, but there's a lot to dig. It's the story of Leo Johnson and Shelley from Twin Peaks. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's musically. There's not much going on. It's just a jumpy little bassline, steady drums, um, and then Bowie's singing like he's just reading the news. And I know that's all intentional, um, but I'm gonna go ahead and say this is my least favorite song on the album uh it's kind of strange because uh that back half has been just all killer and then all of a sudden you get something that is truly filler so that's just the way and that yeah, I look I, about this song uh it gets bonus points for tackling a, a topic that sucks that should be talked about um but yeah it's just and i understand it i understand that the repetition, the the sound of the song is repetitive, which is the point. Right. But that doesn't mean I want to listen to it, you know. And uh, the one point part where it breaks through is in the closing back to hero of the the, the album, Dennis Davies. He does some uh, double kick drum fills, which I think are awesome. Um, but that's it, though. That's, that's the only part where it's changed up. Uh yeah, I, 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 you know, the, the bass line just kind of goes bum, 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 all the way through. It's the same pace all the way through. Just not 
not a fan. Uh, yeah. So definitely, I would, I, I would say like you're right. It's the point that it's repetitive. Um, it's you know the cycle of abuse, um, and uh, I think that all that's all very intentional. Um, I'm not going to try to convince anybody that it's musically great, but I, what I will say is it's pleasant enough to listen to, and I appreciate what he's trying to say. So while it is maybe a a low point in engagement on the album. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it's filler. It wasn't, I don't think it was intended to be filler. I don't consider it filler. It's just, um, it's just the, the sense of whimsy and fun is not here on the song and that wouldn't be appropriate if it was there. So I don't know. It's just weird. It should not, it should. That's true. The, the song, the song should not sound fun. No. And it, 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 so. it shouldn't, if if this if if the, if you took this subject matter and applied it to boys keep swinging's music, that would have been a bad move. Yeah, it it, it doesn't. Isn't it funny? This song follows a, a song title called "Boys Keep Swinging." Didn't you hear me make that joke? Four oh, I know, ago. but I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was tuned out. I was yeah 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 yeah. yeah. I I made a very. Uh, very... Do you do you just do you, do you just put Eric on mute sometimes? I mean, I do it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you it's well, good. It sounds made... like he's recording in the next room. Well, I I just making sure he's still talking to us. So. I uh, I um <laughs> I uh, made may, may have made a very, you know, possibly bad joke about domestic violence. That is probably better you didn't hear. But um, uh, anyways, well, I'm 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 editing this uh, episode, so everyone's gonna hear it twice. <laughs> uh, oh boy! Um, but that being said, it does not necessarily fit on the momentum of this album. But I couldn't imagine it this album without it. Also, so there you go. All right. Well, you know what? One little wobbly misstep on a good time isn't gonna derail this whole record, and they do write the ship, if you ask me with the closing track, Red Money. Yes, it does go back. I think that, again, that that's something that I found remarkable when I'd finished how much I'd, I'd taken from all my previous albums on it. There's, it goes, some of them are even, I mean, Fantastic Voyage could quite easily have turned up on Hunky Dory. I mean, there's, sort of, there's lots of different areas of what I've done on yeah. okay this is this is the last track of the album and it's the cheekiest yet and I'll just well firstly it's uh, what some of the paintings I've done that red boxes keep appearing which we never see right the people hold red boxes and I've, I've often wondered what the red box was all about in the paintings and I, I sort of came to the conclusion it was probably responsibility because the people that are carrying the red boxes always I like that, as though they've got it and they don't want it, you know, and sort of, though they're stuck with this red box. So I thought I'd put it into a, a song as well, so the red box is back. And I think it's about responsibility. And it's called, <laughs> it's called Red Money. So Mark made a excellent observation. Uh, Mark, what was your observation about this track? And not so, just that it, yes, yes, we all know that it is, it is a reworking of Sister Midnight. We do. We know that. But chronologically, it's very unique. Yeah, uh, it just 
kind of struck me that this whole Bowie's phase, and if you will, the uh, the trilogy of the Berlin um, sound, really started with David Bowie producing Iggy Pop's uh, first solo record, The Idiot. And the opening track on that one's album was, of course, uh, Sister Midnight. And this is Bowie taking that melody back, reworking it to Red Money, which essentially closes out everything. So it comes full circle. Starts and ends with the same melody. And uh, you gotta appreciate the symmetry that Bowie was going for. Don't know if that was intentional, but I'm gonna say that most likely it was. <laughs> of course it was. The chorus he goes, yeah. Project Cancelled! <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. 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 No, it was. Not, I love this song. It's beautiful. I I love the um, the the good good point, Eric. The whole project canceled thing. This album has a lot of just funny lyrical flourishes. The hinterlands thing, the uh, the project canceled deal. The there's a lot of manic interjections that uh, you know the the what is this on why assassin. I just, I, they have a good sense of humor on this record, and I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, it was kind of like, I mean, that's what's so good about this era. Like, Low was an immensely depressing album, but it was fun. It was, it was, it invented, it, you know, depression porn. It was just a good time. This whole era is very fun. Um, this song is a. It, it, it connects back to the opening track of Fantastic Voyage very well. You you you're worried about a world of people being connected through fear that their government's going to betray them and and you know nuclear war is going to happen. And this is that last the last few moments. Um, can you feel it in the way that a man is not a man? Can you see it in the sky that the landscape is too high, like a nervous disease? It's been there all along. Just impending doom. And, and you can read the man is not a man a couple ways. Either, you know, man, man like in Boys Keep Swinging or like top of the top of the world. Um, the skies part for them. But in this situation, they you know, most men are the, the men are just powerless. Um, or you can look at it like man without humanity. Um, project canceled. Tumbling central. Red money. Can you hear it fall? I mean, the, the Berlin Wall would fall in the next decade, um, but it's more like society falling. I think that's more what he's referring to in this. Um, then I got a small red box and I didn't know what to do. <clears throat> and eventually in an interview, he said that he felt like he had a lot of responsibility, um, especially like with the new wave movement starting up and, you know, everything that he kind of become. And, uh, just he felt like he had responsibility that he didn't know what to do with becoming an, like such an influencer. And, um, that kind of goes with, you know, when you realize your responsibility to the world, um, you know, he had a very career based reflection on that, but I think he was trying to tie it into the themes of the song that like, that like, it's our fault. That's, that's where we're at. We had a responsibility and, uh, and we failed. And it's 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 human's fault that the world's ending. Yeah, and and the red box is something that apparently David Bowie, he like would do paintings with red boxes in them, and that responsibility you're talking about, that reoccurring 
red box would pop up in his work. So I will keep an eye out for that moving forward. Right. Um, this is one that the, uh, the Visconti remix really shines. Um, there are a ton of Eno tweaks going on in the song and they just, they just flourish the, 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 the earphones when you listen to the Visconti remix. So uh, check that one out. Yeah, I think it's a good, a good closer. I love Sister Midnight. I think Red Money's pretty good. I think I prefer Sister Midnight, but uh, Red Money does have this, this like insane SOS uh, Morris Code tapping rhythm throughout the whole yeah. thing that I don't remember Sister Midnight having. If it did, I didn't notice it. You guys know what I'm talking about? I do. You know, you're right. There, there, there's layers of, of that on top of it. And, um, you know, Bowie is a better vocalist than Iggy Pop, but I think you're right. Sister Midnight had a very focused purpose and Iggy Pop does it very, very fine, but it is fun to hear the same, the same basic framework. And then with all the low era flourishes and then Bowie just singing to the rafters, it's a, it's a nice little addition to it. Um, Mark, what do you think? I gave my two cents on this one. Uh, I, I do think that this one is perfect. Okay. I I love this album closer. Um, I probably do prefer Sister Midnight over it just because I kind of like the swaggerness that Iggy Pop delivers to this. This is essentially, it's a little different. Uh, Iggy Pop is a greeting. This is absolutely the curtains coming down. Um, it's just a different reading on the melody. Yeah. And I think I prefer the 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 swaggerness sure the Agreed. snarkiness of iggy pop Agreed. but yeah Call, calling sister midnight yeah it's it, just fun to say it, it's fun to say and 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 yeah but a hell of a closer too because yeah it's, it's it bookends the album with the same basic framework of a song and uh you know what starts there is like an oedipus complex and iggy pops this one is like the end of the world and humans feeling um realizing that it was their fault and uh <laughs> uh i just i love that he used it it's, it it's great it's great it just ends it ends uh self-referential but also epic at the same time and you know we reap what we sow i guess all right so uh, uh reaping what we're sowing let's let's uh let's talk about the bonus tracks before we give our uh, sure our ranking of this album. Sure. And I didn't listen to either of them, Eric, but I know you oh, always do. So tell me about it. Of course. It. Uh, there's, there's only two. Oh, the first one is I pray. Olay. Um, and this one is, I mean, the song itself is, I, there, there's not, there's not much to it. It's a very strum heavy song. The beats done by like this, very thick guitar strumming, but you can tell by the pastiches. It, it sounds like it's straight from this era. It says it was recorded in 79. But what's interesting is when you follow the history of the song, it was a uh, tin machine era when these songs were unearthed and added to Ryko disc. Um, mm. So it is believed that all of the, the pinwheel guitar work on uh, this song is actually Reeves Gabriel just doing like a, an overdub on like some old recordings to uh, 
to uh, bring him up to speed. Maybe Bowie doing another vocal edit over it. Um, it uh, it's it may that may not be true. That's only theorized on pushing ahead the name, but uh, it is. I could see that happening. It does sound like Reeves guitar playing on the song. Um, it's it's a good listen. I think it would have been frustrating on Ryko Disc to hear it after the the great ending of the album. It would just kind of feel flat. Uh, but it's totally from this era and totally worth your time. Did you listen to it, Mark? I did. Um, I wasn't a fan. I certainly heard the uh, 90s flourish that you were kind of uh, speculating on. Um, and it actually made me kind of wonder if it was actually recorded during the Lodger era. When I was uh, bringing up on YouTube, just seeing some of the comments from a lot of the Bowie fans, uh, you know, they were over the moon for this song, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, it clearly did not really belong on this album and uh, just wasn't a fan. Right. didn't connect with it. I mean, I mean, your guy's least favorite song was repetition, but I couldn't imagine like losing that for this would, would have improved the album. No, I wouldn't. Nah. Yeah. I wouldn't have switched them out right. either. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, the only other bonus track off this is it came out many years later in 1988. We talked about it a little bit in our Tim machine episode, but this we can, we can thank for birthing Tim machine. There was a fashion show and Bowie performed with his new favorite guitarist, Reeves Gabriel, an updated version of look back in anger. Um, it's a very synth heavy version um, it's a little bit more aggressive than the original and I actually like it a lot. I don't like it better than the original, but I like it way better than Tim Machine, but apparently this was the birth of Tim Machine. So the 88 version of Look Back in Anger, check it out. It's it's interesting. What do you think, Mark? Um, I strongly prefer the original. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a different arrangement. There's a very long intro before Bowie finally shows up. Um it's it's an interesting take on it, but I mean it it's never going to take the place. It just it's better than what I've heard from anything else that Tin Machine ever put out. I'll I'll give it that. Um, but it wasn't something that I would ever go back to. Sure. I guess. Yeah. And that but that's it for bonus tracks on this. I give this one a four out of five. I um it is really it is hit for hit. Every song just keeps you hooked until it doesn't on repetition, which I will. But then if you take in the, the weight of that song, uh, I feel like that helps them really stick the landing because, uh, because you're, you know, it's not just shallow fun. It's, there's a lot of weight to this album and, um, it can't exist without repetition, unfortunately, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, I love it. Four to five. Steven. I will give this a the same thing I gave low, I believe, a four point five out of five. I uh, the albums are completely different, in my opinion, besides the fact that the personnel is the same. But I um, <clears throat> I really like the the pop sensibilities of the album, but it's it's weird ass pop, uh, and also I think that it definitely is a good primer for my favorite David Bowie album, Scary Monsters. I think they 
they flesh out some of the ideas and the wackiness here and they strengthen up the songwriting a bit for scary monsters. But I think scary monsters definitely starts on lodger. If that makes sense. I dug it. And I also was happy to like it as much as I did because I never thought lesser of it, but I never really thought as highly of it as I do now. And, uh, I had a lot of fun listening to it quite a bit for this, uh, podcast. You bet. Um, I'm right there along with Steve. It's 4.5 for me. Um, the only thing that did take me out of it, uh, was repetition. Um, I think that obviously it's, uh, an important topic. Don't get me wrong. Don't cancel me out there. Um, I think that it could have been executed a little bit better. Um, I think it has been executed that, that theme by others. Um, at the top of my head, I can't name another song that deals with domestic violence, but, uh, Janie's got a gun. I was just going to say that Aerosmith song. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Hive brain. Um, but yeah, I, I would take Janie's got a gun over repetition. Sorry guys. Oh, I'm not an Aerosmith God, honking on Bobo get fan. Fuck, get the fuck out of here. That's <laughs> Hey man, it's got a great video. <laughs> and I hate Aerosmith. I do. I think that man is made of scarves and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not a fan. Um, hey, you know what? You know what's funny about that song is that you know how in your life there are going to be times where one thing happens, while another thing happens, and you can't separate the two. You're always going to be reminded of of one if you think of the other. Yep. During the bachelor years of my father, post divorce, where he lived in the Lincoln Apartments, he had MTV, and I love that. And one night, he made this terrible fucking pea soup for dinner. Ugh. And so I got my pea soup. I went to sit down and watch MTV. And that was the first time I saw Janie's Got a Gun. And every time I hear that song, I think of like lukewarm pea soup. Oh. Jesus. Well, I mean, that is exactly that. You just described Aerosmith's career for me. <laughs> lukewarm. <laughs> lukewarm pea soup. Oh, oh, oh man. boy. Uh, you guys want to hear uh, something crazy? Uh, Fantastic Voyage was the last song Bowie performed live. Really? Yeah, yeah. He he busted it out for the uh, the closer for whatever his last thing was. So, anyways, I think that's kind of unbelievable. Cool. Yeah, that, and, that and, is kind of cool. And it seemed like it was a conscious decision on him. He knew he was not interested in playing live very much longer. So, let's see where this Fantastic Voyage takes us next, Eric. We're getting we're past the halfway point. Uh, there's, uh-huh. there's, there shouldn't be much to scare us from now on. Sure. Hi. Too high. I know when to go out. Let's dance. All right. Ah. <laughs> Eric is very excited. That's good. Now there's some, uh, there's some hits on that record, and that'll that'll be fun to talk about the most popular David Bowie album. I only got it really excited because there's so much there's so much supplemental material for Let's Dance. I'm like remixes, oh, single edits. Oh yes, and it's also it's fun to go to that after you know, right after doing all we we've done part of the Low Trilogy plus the Idiot, so going into the album that has China Girl will be a good time. We haven't been doing as many B-sides lately because we 
We're, we're, we're coming down the home stretch and we're going to just get through these records. But you're goddamn right. We're going to do a Stevie Ray Vaughan B-side. So stay tuned. Oh. Um, all right. So be fun. really quick. Really quick, guys. Uh, uh, Let's Dance also includes a couple live albums. Um, uh, the Serious Moonlight Tour is on DVD. We have it if you guys want to borrow it. Uh, and then, of course, Steve, you often reference the Ziggy Stardust motion picture. That was, oh, fuck. That was this year. All right, we got a couple. We got, we got about a month's worth of content yeah. uh, to get through. We also have some movies he was in. Uh, we have the the song "Under Pressure" um, from Queen. Jeez. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. We have the Hunger, fantastic movie. Uh, we have Yellowbeard. I don't know about that. Uh, Cheech and Chong, I believe. So what we should do for our B-side is just go through all the ancillary work that he was doing at the time, and then we'll go into the album proper. You know, you know, no, Mark, you're not escaping a Steve Ravon B-side. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> God damn it. That'll be a don't suicide. make us. Don't, don't make us get all <laughs> fucking smoky blues in this house. <laughs> exactly. We'll have to talk about Johnny Lang. We'll have to talk about <laughs> Double Trouble. We also have his our first he made an entire solo episode. He made an entire EP of the Vol uh, operas that we have to talk about as well. B-A-A-L. Uh, Under Pressure will be in its own episode, and uh, we'll figure the rest out. <laughs> There's a lot of content to be mined. There is. From 1983, I believe. There is. All right. Well, thank you for listening. As always, this has been Mark. Eric. I am Steven. And we hope that we brought you closer to Pod. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That's Lodger. Um, oh, it's just, you know, I, again, in New York, just that's how I felt. And I, apart from, there was a sort of a definitely a thematic thing on the first side about traveling uh, but i didn't want to make too much of a thing about that and call it travel along bowie or something so i i, I thought lodger sort of you know casually covered it all it was originally there was a point where it was going to be called that it was also going to be called planned accidents and uh, just before that it was going to be called despite straight lines which all went out the window Planned accidents, yeah. I think that's what we'll, we'll probably uh, use as a, uh, an instrumental album. I think Brian and I might get together on something. Just call planned accidents. Maybe just the two of us. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've talked about New York. You were talking about um, pretty chicks and disco and all that. Lots of fame. All had to end, you said. I don't think it has. Hmm. Is that what I said? Yeah. I'll keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs>